What is up, freaks? It's your boy, Marty Bent, here to introduce this week's episode of Tales from the Crypt. I did a terrible job of introducing my guest uh, when we hit record, so I'm going to do a better job here. I sat down with Dave Collum, professor of organic chemistry from Cornell University, but he's much more than that. Um, I've been following him on Twitter for, for quite some time now, uh, most acutely for his views on finance, but he's got views outside of the world of chemistry and finance and in my opinion, it is an example of a critical thinker uh, that we need more of in the world today. So I was very happy to be able to sit down with Dave uh, over the computer last Friday and go over his 2019 year in review before it dropped. I had not read anything before we had this conversation, um, so it is pretty pretty raw. And uh, I did read his year in review over the weekend. I highly recommend you freaks go do that if you have not already. If you have done so already, don't worry. This podcast touches on a few other topics as well as Bitcoin and approaches the subjects in some different fashions as well. So it's definitely worth listening to. Uh, Dave, again, is somebody I think is uh, one of the best thinkers I've encountered on the internet uh, in the recent years. And I want to drop, or excuse me, read this tweet that he dropped in July of this year before we jump into this episode, because again, we talk about some taboo subjects that are going to trigger some people. All right, here's a tweet. I am a conspiracy theorist. I believe men and women of wealth and power conspire. If you don't think so, then you are what is called an idiot. If you believe stuff but fear the label, you are what is called a coward. I think that's a very powerful statement, and that's basically the the uh, vibe of this episode. So I hope you freaks enjoy it. We do talk about Bitcoin. Uh, Dave is a gold bug and Bitcoin skeptic, but I think we had a good conversation about the subject. This episode of Tales from the Crypt is brought to you by Cash App. As you know, Cash App is the simplest way to send and save money, and now it's the simplest way to try to grow your money. Introducing Cash App Investing. You guys already know that you can stack sats on this, the Cash App. You can buy Bitcoin, sell Bitcoin, send it, receive it, do all that good stuff with Bitcoin. Now, you can start stacking slivers of shares, too. Unlike investing tools that only let you buy entire shares of stock, Cash App lets you instantly invest as little or as much as you want. This way, when your favorite company's stock is just a little too expensive, you can still still own a piece with a little with as little as one dollar because cash app is directly connected to your bank account there are no four to five day waiting periods for inbound transfers so you can start investing today all right you don't have to stack slivers of shares the option is there optionality we talked about this a lot in this podcast it's good i know a lot of you saying why will you stack stack slivers of shares i don't know it's a personal preference it's up to you if you want to it's there if you want to stack stats you can keep stacking stats Brokerage services are provided by Cash App Investing, a subsidiary of Square and member SIPC. As always, use the code STACKINGSATS, one word, STACKINGSATS. You're going to get $10, and Cash App is going to send $10 to good friends at Owls Lacrosse. That's Owls Lacrosse. <laughs> Download the Cash App from the App Store or Google Play Store today. Enjoy this episode, freaks. Enjoy your Christmas and your Hanukkah, too. What is up, freaks? Welcome back to Tales from the Crypt. It's your boy Marty Bent here in Brooklyn with another remote interview with a very special guest, a man I've uh, been following on Twitter for many years, been infinitely fascinated by his takes. I think we align pretty well philosophically and just really excited to jump into this, to this conversation. I want to introduce you, freaks, to Dave Collum. Dave, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's my pleasure. 
I, I, I love these sort of chats. No, I've, uh, no, I get a lot of, uh, value out of you having these chats too. We were just talking about your, your most recent podcast on QTR when you were, uh, peeing into a mug. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that was a, that was a great app. I love QTR too. As a fellow Philadelphian, I think, uh, he's got a very good, good podcast. Right. Yeah. Um, so the reason, uh, I wanted to get you on today is multifaceted. I want to talk about Bitcoin at some point. This is a Bitcoin podcast. Uh, I want to talk about inflation at some point, but first I want to talk about your year in review. You do an annual year in review that, uh, tends to trigger some people and, uh, you're about to drop yours tonight. Hopefully if the revisions get in, um, and you think it's going to cause a couple shit storms, particularly around, uh, climate change. Why, why do you think that is? Um, well, you know, every year I write, I write about things that I care about. And sometimes there's stuff that I, that I think I care about when it comes time to write, I don't care about it this year. I think climate change was my biggest, my biggest, uh, most sort of, you know, cathartic section of the thing. And, and I'll, I'm going to dial it back for years. I've been surrounded by climate change believers and, uh, and I, you know, one, one night at dinner with the secretary of energy and I told him I was agnostic that, and he, he flinched and I said, well, but it would take me 10,000 hours to be qualified to have an opinion. And w what had been bothering me is how many people who I didn't think were qualified seemed to have a strong opinion. And, uh, he conceded that point. And then, um, and then I had a couple of people nagging me to look into climate change and they would say things like, you know, you know, there's important scientists who don't believe the climate is changing that much or don't believe humans are doing it. And I, I'd say, you know, everyone I know thinks climate change is real. Now, I don't know a single person who doesn't. And they'd say, well, you know, prominent scientists don't believe it. And so I said, well, send me some, right? Give me some links. And so I expected that they would, uh, send me some names from, you know, Sheboygan State College, College of, you know, Agriculture and, and whatever. And, uh, and instead, they sent me a list of people who were serious, you know, big swinging dicks. And I said, okay, but, you know, these guys probably didn't deny climate change. They probably shot down some model and the chain, the, the deniers, which I call them deniers and changers, the deniers probably, uh, probably, you know, claim credit for it, even though they just mathematically torched somebody's model, right? And so I started Googling them and, and that was not the case. These were serious scientific players, uh, Nobel Prize winners, you know, physicists, solar physicists, who were saying that the climate change story is just wrong. It's just, and, and they were saying the, sh the science was shoddy. And so, I, so the first sort of, the first sort of uh, domino to fall was the fact was the claim that no serious scientists would deny climate change. And I had just found dozens actually who were denying climate change, who were, you know, one guy was head of the National Academy of Sciences, one guy, you know, solar physicist, chairman of uh, Hebrew University's uh, uh, physics department, right? I mean, these are, these are seriously smart guys. And they were saying it's baloney. It's a hoax for some were saying, you know, it's not what they're, you know, as extreme as people say. So there's degrees of denial. Um, so I started digging in and what I eventually conclusion I came to, not with great confidence because I didn't do 10,000 hours, but, um, but a big part of it is a hoax, I think. Um, there's a $600 billion a year being spent on all facets of climate change. 
and one of the realizations is, is that the huge conflict of interest mean that um, that if we found out that climate change was a dud, uh, $600 billion would go poof. And so what are the odds someone's going to find climate change is a dud? And the answer is zero, right? There's too much money riding on it now. So, and I tear into it. There's, I have like 26 maxims where I talk about all the problems, you know, the, 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 the dying polar bears and how much, how much crock they are and stuff like that. Just all the stories, receding glaciers have horrifyingly inaccurate depictions behind them. And so I, I chew away on that and act like a judge. I just, I, I don't know the field, but I'm adjudicating the case between the deniers and the, and the, the, the changers and the, the changers, a lot of lying going on in that field. There's a lot of real fraud. Yeah, I mean, it uh, it just seems that way, right? You have the uh, a front child of the movement, Greta, um, they're parading her. Well, that's comically stupid, right? Yeah, right. I, I mean, at least I think so. Um, it's... Yeah, but you could argue that the scientists are not doing that, right? You could argue that's just well, you know, the scientists. Might be doing their job, and I think they probably are. But I think if you got a scientist behind closed doors, they'd say, "Look, we don't. There's a lot of stuff we don't know." But I think the scientists would not be out there screaming about the destruction of the planet. Well, if you were able to find all these scientists who had come to the conclusion that um, maybe the climate is not changing in the ways that people like to think it is, how come none of those uh, sources are getting into the mainstream or aren't getting out to? Like how, how, over what? Oh, they get shut down fast. So, so there's a great story, like one, the guy at Hebrew University, remarkably smart. This guy graduated from college at 18 or something. He's a genius. He published an article in Forbes basically saying it's the sun, stupid, right? I mean, it's the sun. If you follow solar cycles and you follow Earth's temperature, it's the solar cycles. And, uh, and he said he also claimed that there's not a shred of direct evidence that CO2 changes the temperature of the planet. And I, I'm not qualified to say that's true or not. I am qualified to say that that guy's smart as hell. It's his business and he's doubting, right? And uh, he published this in Forbes and about three hours later, they pulled the article. Really? Yeah, How? yeah, they, Forbes said it's not up to our standards. Was this recently? Yeah. Yeah. The, the, there's, there's some profound liars in the field, right? There's some, there's some, there's fraud, charlatans, liars. Um, there's things like, oh, I don't know. We've all heard that 97% of climate scientists believe that. It turns out that's a complete fraud. That is a complete fraud. Where's that stack from coming from? Well, so there's a number of... One guy did a great dissection of a whole bunch of polls, and he looked at each one and said, how'd they do it? That particular one... And I heard a guy say, that's not even a debatable number. That That's true. And, uh, one of my colleagues at Cornell, right? supposed to be a smart guy. Uh, that comes from someone who plowed through 11,000 papers on climate science, um, looked at just the abstracts, forgivable, you can't read 11,000 papers. They called out all the papers that didn't meet some criteria, right? First and foremost, the ones the abstract said nothing about climate change. And, and they called it down to a subset of 11,000 papers that turned out to be 79 papers, of which 77 said there was climate change. And that is 97%. So that's where they're pulling that stuff from. So 77 out of 79 that were called from 11,000. That's where that number comes from. So someone who knows that, who cites that number, they're a liar. 
If they know that's where it comes from and they cite that, they're a liar, they're a fraud, I'm calling you out, you can suck my salty balls, you bastard, <laughs> right? Well, I guess we should dive into what, where, what are the specifics of the conflicts of interest? Like Forbes pulled that article or is the media connected to it? Um, you said there was 600 yeah. well, billion. $600 billion, yeah. right? I mean, that, that pays off, that pays a lot of people. Yeah. Right. There's whole departments of universities. There's whole divisions of governments. There's whole programs to fund solar cells. There's lobbies. So here's a great, great story that I picked up this year. Michael Moore went to, to make a movie, right? It's not hard to picture the movie Michael Moore wanted to make. And he dug into it and, and the guy he made it with a guy named Gibbs, I think it is, who he's made, he made Fahrenheit, whatever. He did a bunch of movies with him. They dug into it. And there was this article and it quoted them and they said, we dug into this and it's just not what we realized. And he, they said that the big conflict is in the, is in the climate industry. And what they discovered was the story was just all wrong. And then it was, it was people looking for handouts and tax rebates and, and selling solar panels. And, and it was, it, it was people whose entire jobs are about screaming about climate change. And so the movie that they ended up making was called Planet of the Humans. Um, you can see the Planet of the Apes uh, spin there. Um, my understanding is it's going to, of course, hammer big industry, but it's not going to hammer big oil. It's going to hammer big, big wind, big, big solar, stuff like that. Yeah, because we're finding out in Germany right now that as much as we want these renewable energies to come uh, to fruition and come to the market, uh, it's really the wind only blows you can't really make the wind blow and you can't control the clouds and i think germany's finding out they, they had a huge green energy push the last decade and it's becoming very unprofitable from them too so they're trying to force us into energy sources that aren't really profitable at the end of the day or reliable yeah I, you know i've known chris martinson for probably 20 years now ironically we've never met <laughs> it's just digital right but i have friends who i've never met <laughs> I, I don't know what you call these people, acquaintances. I don't know. Um, Chris got interest in resource depletion. Chris is remarkably green. Chris is, you know, thinks we're destroying the planet. I sign off on all that. Now, I think the Earth's more durable than people think, right? And all you have to do is remember back to those who say, oh, no, we're destroying the Earth. Um, George Carlin said it well. He said, look, the Earth's going to be fine. We're just not going to be there to see it. Um, but, but, just as a reminder, I, I remember when, for example, the oil wells were burned in Iraq and it was going to be nuclear winter with all those oil wells burning away, you know, Saddam and Nuktus. And we had Carl Sagan on TV talking about nuclear winter and this and that. And we put them out and it was gone. Right. So you go, OK, apparently not. Um, the one that really was horrifying and vividly horrifying was when the Gulf oil spill. Right, and from the gates of hell, we'd, we we opened up the Earth's core, and oil was spewing out in vast quantities. We were just filling the Gulf, and and it was going to turn the Gulf into the Dead Sea, right? And then we capped it, and now the you know everyone will say, well, no, there's still some damage. I go, yeah, but there's still fish in there, they're still swimming there, they're still doing everything. You can still it it's gone, right? For all intents and purposes, it's as far gone as the Exxon Valdez is gone. So the earth is much more um, durable than we ever give it credit. Yeah. And so it's climate change. No, I also like that uh, example they gave on QTR about the uh, the coral reefs too. After like a hurricane decimated, I forget what area, the reefs sort of replenished because people weren't swimming in the ocean with 
lotion and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, that's a fascinating story. That that actually came through a friend of mine who was talking to some tour boat guy in the Caribbean, and 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 he was my friend was at, talking to the guy who was setting it up, and he's he asked about the reefs. He said, "Oh, the reefs have never been better." And and my friend said, "Why?" And he's an engineer at Cornell, and and. And the guy said, well, because of the hurricanes, which actually beat up the reefs pretty badly, but because of the hurricane, we've had no tourist seasons for several years. And, uh, and he says that the reefs are totally rejuvenating because you don't have all, apparently the sunscreen is a disaster, people fondling the reefs, stepping on them with their flippers, and, and that by the reefs being left alone, they've completely come back. I've read places that the reefs go through life-death cycles repeatedly. They cycle like everything else in nature. Now, I, I can't confirm this because I saw it just once, but I, I've been told the Great Barrier Reef has dozens and dozens of die-off rebirths. And we could just be looking. Here's the mistake the climate science and the more to the point the climate activists, the, mis the biggest mistake of them all I think they make. What they do is they try to figure out all the things that can explain the changes. And then what they do is they use process of elimination. They'll say, okay, we can explain all these changes, but there's this, still this wad left and that must be human. And that kind of logic I run into a lot in chemistry where a student will say, well, what else could it be? And my answer is without fail, all the things you're too goddamn stupid to realize. <laughs> and so because these guys have a, you know, like when you do long division and you have a remainder, they say, well, that remainder's human. And, and it's, that's, that's stupid, right? That's, that's shoddy science. Yeah. No, that's actually, uh, this is probably a part of the conversation where you can insert Bitcoin into, because I think Bitcoin actually produces uh, a, an actionable thing that we can use to actually help clean up the environment because it creates the incentive uh, specifically to go uh, consume stranded gas, which is one of the worst. Why is that now? Explain that. So Bit Why is it Bitcoin mining is very energy intensive. It takes a lot. Of oh, oh, so just the consumption of energy. Yeah. I've never known which of those numbers to believe, right? So I'm reaching a point in my life and a point in my effort to understand the world. Um, and because every year seems different, I have to study different things every year to, to understand it. Um, I don't believe anything anymore. So someone will cite. I cited a paper the other day. Yesterday, I put it on, on, on Twitter. I posted a paper about Pelosi's brother-in-law getting some $750 million contract for solar panels, right? I just posted. I said, look, is this is this a, an impeachable or, 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 or um, imprisonable offense, right? I just asked that rhetorical question. Given that she's hammering on Trump, right? It just seemed like an, a... a well, time. Someone sent it to me. It's an eight-year-old article. And this guy, Scott Nations from CNBC, jumped all over me. I've never seen this guy on my Twitter feed. And he's talking about what a loser I was. And anyone could, could, anyone could have shown that was baloney in two minutes. And, and he cited, you know, checkfacts.org. <laughs> well, it turns out that the, the various fact-checking organizations are these partisan operations. And so I had, someone had actually already pointed that out to me and I went to checkbacks.org and I read what they said about that article. But then what I did is I booted up a couple other articles like, oh, steel dossier, things like that to see what Checkfacts said about that. And they were wrong on all those. They were wrong on the Syrian chlorine gas attacks. 
They were wrong in all the things that I, we now have information. They were wrong about Comey and Clapper, and right? So, 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 so we don't have a source of valid information. We don't have a Walter Cronkite. We have bloggers. That's all we got. We have guys like you, Marty. <laughs> well, no, it's true, and that's actually one of the Bitcoiners' favorite books that they like to read. It's called The Sovereign Individual. It was written in 19... 19- 96 by David Rees-Moggs, the uh, current uh, British part. I know Rees-Moggs. Yeah. This is written by him and um, Lee Davidson. And they basically predicted that in the future, in the information age, you'll never, you you have to be able to uh, validate things for yourselves. You're not going to be able to tell what's true or false. Absolutely. Yes. And I watch the sources and I watch them cross. And if I see an article that comes out of some obscure place, and I, I, here's how I saw it happen. I saw it personally happen. I was talking to a guy named Tony Deaton, who turns out to be a famous Swiss money manager, old money, wealth preservation guy. And I eventually talked him into doing an interview on Real Vision TV, only to find out after the fact it's the first interview he ever did. And I didn't know that. So the real vision is this big hoop one. I go, shit, did I do that? So anyway, so I'm talking to Tony. And Tony says he bought GLD. And he had $60 million worth of GLD. And he tried to cash it in for hard gold. And GLD said, take a hike. And he said he had a team of lawyers. And they he tried to press GLD to give him the gold. Now, I think within the prospectus, they didn't have to. But Tony tried. And they didn't give it. Is GLD the ETF? I posted that. I posted that. I told a friend that story. And then I watched that move around the globe. And then I called Tony back. I said, Tony, please tell me that story is true. Did I get it right? And he said, yeah. He says, I wrote about it in 05 or 07 or some some years back. And I looked up and there I was. He had written about it. But I watched my transmission circumnavigate the gold globe because I just told, I think I told Grant Williams, he put it in one of his blogs and boom, off it went. And Dave's story had become part of the fabric of the gold community. That's, and it was right, but the source sucked. But, and it's fascinating how quickly that can spread, right? Like I, uh, right. I had the pleasure of interviewing Jack Dorsey earlier this year. And it was crazy. Oh, that'd be fun. It was the first. Uh, it was the first time experienced like fake news in real life, uh, being a part of a story that was fake I news. I think he's sincere. Did you get, did you th- get that impression? I do. I do. I do. I think he's a lefty, but I think he's sincere. I do as well. Uh, disclaimer: Cash App, which is a square company, is a sponsor of this podcast. But I do. Uh, okay. I do think he is uh, is pure and for the cause he's doing, and at least uh, what he's he believes it. What he's doing with Bitcoin in particular, I think he's earnest. Um, I think he's right, but you know, so Twitter is said to be this left leaning thing. I think that's true, but I think that they're, I, I don't think they're left leaning like some uh partisan hit job. I, th- I think they just lean left, yes. Yeah, so no, and you can see last week it's a sincere left leaning, right? Yeah, and last week, I, I think Jack's thread uh, about hiring five developers to work on an uh, open source standard for social media in which he could give up control and Twitter wouldn't be the only client through which people could send these types of messages was an admission that he sort of wants to give up control. He doesn't like having to censor people. He doesn't want to be in vetting. So one day, you know, Rudy, you got to know. Oh, Rudy, Rudy Van Avensteen's. Uh, he's one of my favorites. Rudy, Rudy's, Rudy's the Twitter legend, right? So one day Rudy sends me a direct message. 
Um, I don't even know who Rudy is. Rudy's a friend. I do not know who he is. Rudy sends me a direct message. He says, we're about to get booted off Twitter. And he says, go look at Jack's feed. And Jack had followed the two of us. And I said, I don't think Jack's in charge of booting us. And, and I actually know where it came from. Because <clears throat> one day I was feeling sort of warm and fuzzy. And I said, you know, people bitch about Twitter, but I find it to be a remarkable ecosystem and remarkably open to ideas. And it's a friendly place to be for the most part, right? And I said, and then of course, Rudy, ben ha Rudy Havasin is here. So how could you not love this place, right? Somehow that got on Jack's desk and he followed the two of us. That's how, that's how that happened. But, but not many people have the coveted Jack follow, right? In the world of Twitter where, you know, there's people who are important because you want to talk to them. But then there's just the trophy, right? Yeah. There's the Tanya McGraw, Jack Dorsey, uh, Joe Rogan, um, guys like that who, you know, I, I chat occasionally with Joe, but, but, but it, it's more just wild, right? Yeah. Uh, These are heroes. No, I know. Um, I know the feeling I am also in the Jack Dorsey follow club. It feels, uh, Oh, a, you lucky one. It's a badge. There's about 3000 of us. So it's not that elite, but it's, it's 3000 versus about 5 million the other way. So yeah, it's a uh, honor to be in it with you. Hi, Jack. <laughs> <laughs> you may be listening. You may be listening. What's up, Jack? You may be listening. You never know. Um, no, but going back to like how Bitcoin, so talking about, like you were saying that you don't know about the stats on Bitcoin energy. It's a big FUD line out there is that uh, Bitcoin consumes so much energy, it's going to boil the oceans. Right. And then, is that true? I mean, it's true that Bitcoin consumes a lot of energy. Yes, Bitcoin consumes a great amount of energy. Will that stop once? Will that stop when Bitcoin's done being mined or will that continue as Bitcoin sort of just whips around the blockchain? Uh, that'll continue. Um, but miners over time. Okay, so it is energetically expensive. Yes, but uh, so that this is where the nuance comes in, right? So there's definitely a lot of energy consumed, but what what you find is that it actually is most of the times uh, either renewable energy in the form of stranded hydroelectric or geothermal, um, or stranded gas, uh, which is so on. How is it? How is it located? How, how do you sort of coordinate off that way? How, how, how do you know it's that, not just a, a power cord into a server? I mean, there is. How do you know that's the kind of energy fueling it? There is a power cord into a server. Um, at the end of the I day, I know, but the server's hooked up to the grid, right? And that's just energy. Well, so the economics of Bitcoin mining are such that you need to find the lowest cost energy, and that just oh, so happens. So they're going and looking for the off-hour power. Yes. Um, because okay. to help with their profit margins, what you find is the cheapest energy is that which is wasted or not used at all. And so in the case here in America, mining is actually starting to come to America. And what you're seeing in the back end, uh, oil shale in like North Dakota and Utah is a lot of these uh, oil fields. They'll drill oil and then they have uh, excess methane and natural gas. It's just they can't they literally cannot contain it and build the pipes to get it to cities because they're too far. So they're just forced to vent or flare it on site. And they, it's actually terrible for the environment. And it's a lot of energy. Right. It's just wasted. So it's really a distant. Why don't, why don't we put steel mills and stuff up in places like this, right? I mean, for example, there's a company which has done very poorly, I should add, but, but it's in Iceland and it taps into the geothermal, right? Yeah. Why, why, why do we not attach smelters or whatever to the, to the, um, to the natural gas fields? Uh, I can't speak to that specifically. I would imagine, I guess it would be, a, don't, don't the smelters have to be by the supply of where 
as tough as mind or no well maybe but it also but it, if there was something that would require a huge amount of heat for example the idea of getting free energy because you're you're for one thing it probably costs the energy companies to flare it they probably have to pay some tax on the flaring yeah so that's right? a big problem they have emissions taxes that, so, so the energy companies would pay you to take that flared gas and use it yes and that's and and then the question becomes why not um like for example in the in um in iceland they have aluminum you know processing plants and stuff like that and they're there because of the geothermal not because of the aluminum yeah well i imagine it's just a lot in why would you choose Bitcoin over doing a steel a smelter on site? It's probably just a lot cheaper to do Bitcoin to get the raw materials and bring them on so, site. So the servers are up at the yeah. So that's up at the site. So the problem is it's a it's a travel and distance problem. They literally can't transport the energy from the fields to the cities. They, it's not profitable to build the pipes, nor is it possible okay. to contain all the energy and get them into pipes. So you show up, you solve that transport problem by trans uh by showing up to the field and you bring the bitcoin miners to the source and you cap it on the field mine the bitcoin on site and then you can send it anywhere in the world so what's the current number of bitcoin left to be mined what's that number now? it's less than three million there was we're over 18 million so that means that that means you've got at current prices around 20 billion dollars of bitcoin left out there at current prices um you're probably better at math than me. It's at, well, it's, so you take a thousand and you make it a million into a billion. Seven. So, uh, so you current price right seven now. Seven times three is twenty billion. I don't. I'm trying to. The price has been so volatile this week. It's at seventy one fifty. We'll call it seven thousand. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. Current prices. So it's about seven. It's about twenty billion dollars. How long before you think that's gone? The rest of the Bitcoin. The, yeah. How long before they've mined it out? 2140 is when the next, the last Bitcoin will be mined. So Bitcoin supplies. That's known? That's a projectable number? Yes, because of the way Bitcoin mining works. Uh, the algorithm. The, well, most importantly, the difficulty adjustment of the mining. So if too many miners. So how many per year get mined then? Uh, right now. So every 210,000, so the schedule started from the Genesis block to block 210,000, there was 50 Bitcoin per minute, or excuse me, per block. Um, so half the supply was mined up front in the first four years. So that was, uh, doing math in my head right now, like 10 and a half million in the first four years. Then cut that in half again. So we did 5.25 million between 2012 and 2016. 2016, there was another halving that cut that to 12 and a half Bitcoin per 10 minutes. That's what we're currently in. Next May, that'll get cut to 6.25 Bitcoin per 10 minutes. So it's very formulaic. Yes, yes. Do I remember this correctly? Um, so in some sense, I make for the perfect person because I know something, but not much. Um, individuals could mine Bitcoin in the early days, right? Yes, an individual. You could just get out of your computer. Yes, uh, mine it, right? so the way mining has evolved throughout the years, you could it went from CPU chips from your laptop you could mine on your MacBook to uh, GPU chips, which are graphics processing units, which are usually used for gaming computers, to a short period of FPGAs. I forget what that stands for, but now the uh, <laughs> now what we're now what the uh, the market is. Uh, 
the standard is is an ASIC, so it's a chip that's dedicated to solving the, the Bitcoin SHA-256 hashing algorithm particularly. It does that one function and nothing else. Um, and what we're seeing is that ASICs are becoming more commodified over time. They're becoming more efficient and having longer life cycles. These are serious servers now, right? You're in some big stuff with the this A6s, right? Yeah, they're pretty, I mean, they're not an ASIC, like a miner still. But these are not retail miners now. I mean, you could buy, you could retail. So that's the thing. Like if you have cheap energy or energy that you're able to siphon off somewhere, like, uh, like in a college dorm room, say, like you can personally mine and contribute to what's called a mining pool and get a payout a little bit. You're not going to find a block yourself, but you will contribute hash rate to a pool and that pool will divvy up uh, the coins that they now, receive. Does mining require skill or is it literally just a CPU thing? It, no skill at all. It just requires plugging a machine in and pointing it somewhere. I see. I see. Um, okay. So what to you, what's your biggest fear? What's the biggest risk to Bitcoin as far as you're concerned? Apathy. And people don't realize that they need it. Um, well, what if apathy goes on forever? I don't know. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. Uh, Bitcoin could still persist. Um, it's just whether or not, I mean, Bitcoin's going to, the biggest hurdle Bitcoin has to overcome is, is the state and is very much an affront to their ability. Yeah, their ability to... Uh, print money. Um, but I do believe it is a, uh, the fundamentals of the system are such that it does have a chance at actually being, uh, being uh, able to, to fend off attacks from the state. Well, you're the most circumspect person I've talked to about Bitcoin. Most of them are doing the, you know, fist pump. We, they can't touch us. And I'm going, ah. I don't believe that. I think the way you presented it is, sounds reasonably valid. Yeah. And that is that you are going to have to beat the sovereign states. I see several foes for you guys. One is you're going to have to beat the sovereign states, all of them, because they're not going to like it. They'll, they'll pretend like they don't care, but the, I, I'm positive they won't like it. Um, does Bitcoin have to be convertible to dollars for it to be worth anything? I don't think so. No, it just has to be convertible. If it's to be a money, it just has to be convertible for goods and services, right? Okay. It would be. Um, it would be much harder. But but that that becomes exposure to the state, right? Because you you it's essentially like saying you know sort of in this surreal world of Bitcoin, you're safe. The second you sort of reach out of that world and you you connect to the real world, where the sovereigns have are, are the biggest kids on the block. Um, you're a great risk of them saying you can't do that. No, no, I agree. I, I like to visualize it like a, uh, like a shuttle going into space and we're still, Bitcoin has to sort of grow and run parallel to the current financial system and the incumbent system and eventually, uh, sort of parasitically siphon off of it. And then after it's out of the atmosphere, break off into its own thing. Right. And and eventually run in the wild so by it itself. It seems to me that for Bitcoin, I did about a three hour one one day with a guy, ironically located in Moscow, former NSA guy. I, I don't know why NSA guys are living in Moscow, right? This, this, oh my head. Um, and he said that Bitcoin does not have to go mainstream to thrive. Uh, yeah, I would, uh, I would agree with that, right? Um, okay. But, but if you can never leave Bitcoin world without getting sort of caught, right? Without without the sovereign saying, oh, by the way, you just bought a car with Bitcoin. 
the tax on that is 50%. No, yeah, yeah. It's definitely a problem as you better overcome, but people find creative ways to get Bitcoin into dollars without going through a centralized exchange. Well, but now, now you're, but now you're potentially quite readily, they can convert that to a federal offense. Right. Yeah. Right. And the sovereigns can do anything they want. They can outlaw it. They've proven that. So, so now what you have to become is an outlaw. <laughs> that. And, and most people won't do that. And therefore it'll keep Bitcoin at, at, a, at a profoundly low level. Uh, sort of just for outlaws to exchange chits with each other, right? Well, I don't like that narrative. That's all like outlaws. So in Bitcoin, as much as it doesn't need mainstream expect, uh, adoption, especially here in the West, like it doesn't need adoption in the West, probably won't get adoption in the West. And people that need it most are people in places like Venezuela, Argentina. Right. People that are Hong Kong. Hong Kong. People are being forced into it that way. And that's what... Bitcoin is really there when you have no other options, and it serves that need very well. Uh, we're actually finding there's a, a gentleman here in New York City, Matt Alborg. He sat down with him a couple episodes ago. He's doing some great research on uh, P2P exchanges in, in like, across the world, and he found that actually Bitcoin is being used uh, like mostly, like, not mostly, but like Bitcoin uh, adoption in states like Venezuela. Argentina, Hong Kong, Russia is is higher than most when you factor in uh, GDP per capita and access to the internet and stuff like that. So even though, um, well, so there's an interesting old school analogy to this. Someone I read this article once where a guy told a story about a check that finally made it back to him, where he had written a check in some distant land for some service. By the time it made it back to him, it was covered with scrawl. And the check had become a, a, a valid check from a U.S. bank had become a currency. And they were transferring it to each other. And the check was making the rounds. And it got more and more signatures and sign-offs and stuff. When it finally made it back to him, the thing had been used as a currency for a very long time just because it was a valid check from a valid Western bank. And so in some sense, that's what you're describing. You're describing a currency that is designed to be able to circumvent decidedly bad authorities right that's the yes that is bitcoin cannot work if it does not fulfill that use case so um what i have trouble picturing is bitcoin becoming truly mainstream i, I don't think the western authorities will let it buy I, I i and i know people say that you know yes we can do it without them but again if they outlaw it and joe Sixpack has to become an outlaw to use it they're not going to Right. We could also, in theory, not pay our taxes, but we also know we'll get screwed. No, I agree. Um, and that's why. So, so then the, the next. Go ahead. I was going to say that's why. Um, yeah, we got to win the battle of ideas. It's, uh, I think it's important that the uh, oil and gas industry here in the States is getting involved. It's a big lobby. If it's uh, helping them reduce emissions and uh, become more profitable, I'm sure they'll they'll have an incentive to fight for Bitcoin. There are representatives. Well, here's another analogy for Bitcoin. Talking to you is making me think about it. In some sense, it's like Napster. Oh, yeah, definitely. So a lot Napster like... Napster started out this background thievery of songs. And the system was able to adopt it, exploit it, turn it into, what, iTunes, right? 
and 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 use the business model of Napster and incorporate it into the mainstream, which allowed, therefore, the idea of Napster to survive. But why were they able to shut down Napster? Well, I don't think they shut it down per se. I think they they brought it above board. Well, they shut it down in its initial state. There, there's no free sh- file share. Yeah. Yeah, but yes. why were they able but, to sh- why were they able to shut it down? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, I, because people don't like to break the law. Because they had a central leader. Because they had somebody they could go to and say, "Hey, you built well, you built Napster." Yeah. Well, that's true too. Yeah, yeah. The, so, I totally get that. So then you there was a guy. Who, yeah, I can't remember. So his name. because Bitcoin's immaculate inception, uh, you sort of have this jurisdictional arbitrage that will play out. Like if one state right. makes Bitcoin illegal. It will. Yeah, they'll may, may make it illegal for their citizens, but it will work in around the world without them. And other jurisdictions may say, "Hey, we like Bitcoin. We're going to use it." So the other interesting challenge I think Bitcoin faces right now it's the dominant player, right? If you say Bitcoin, it's like saying Kleenex, right? Yes. <laughs> There's a lot of bathroom bathroom tissues, but Kleenex says it all. Um, but aren't there something like five thousand cryptos right now? Yes, there are a lot of affinity scams in Bitcoin's wake. Yeah, right. And so so the, it seems to me the other risk is, um, there's always metaphors. It reminds me of the dot-coms, where one of the things that caused the dot-com bubble to burst was there was just this overwhelming supply of these random dot-com companies. And eventually, it, it kind of caused the whole edifice to topple over. Now, you had survivors. Just like you had car companies that survived the 20s and 30s um, when there were something like 250 of them yeah. at the time. Yeah. So you have survivors. But it strikes me as possible that to survive may not necessarily be the leader at in 2019. Um, I would push back with that and say that I would uh, uh, compare Bitcoin uh, not to the dot-com, not to the dot-com bubble, not to the companies that made up the dot-com bubble, but the protocol wars that came before the dot-com bubble, the CompuServe versus AOL versus the right. open internet. Oh, that's a good analogy. So yeah, right. that's, the, that's more analogous to what's going on in Bitcoin, where Bitcoin is a protocol, and protocols have different right. network effects and uh, system uh, distributed system effects that they are, I would argue, more winner-take-all than, uh, than a stock market or something like that. Right. So, 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 yeah, it's, it's like battles between, you know, Microsoft Word and WordPerfect and, and all sorts of things where you, beta versus VHS, right? Mm-hmm. And I'm told beta lost that because they somehow made it not porn friendly. <laughs> and, uh, um, and, and so, yeah, so, so, so I guess one of my concerns would be, and I'm not saying therefore you're an idiot because I don't believe that, um, you were an idiot if you bought Bitcoin at a dollar and sold it for five dollars. Um, that one of my concerns would be that, that, that you don't know who the winner is going to be. Bitcoin's the leader, no question. But when you got five thousand contenders, and I, now I read again, I don't know what to believe, but I read that there's ones which are much more efficient than Bitcoin, much more uh, consumer friendly than Bitcoin. I, I, again, I don't know. If your 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 listeners are Bitcoin fans. Don't send me an email, or if you want to send it, I don't care. But, but I'm not picking on you, right? I'm just saying that when there's five thousand, this is like a big Wimbledon bracket, right? And you guys have the lead; you're the top seed. But, but it doesn't doesn't say that in the end it's going to be you. Very, very valid uh, concern and argument. But I would push back by saying that you're never going to be able to replicate the uh, the essence of Bitcoin's immaculate conception. Now that there's 
many eyes on this space, the, the purity of Bitcoin's launch can never be replicated. So that's one thing. Number two. It's Amazon. It's Amazon. Yeah. Number two, um, the, the more efficient, faster, lighter blockchains, uh, they may market themselves with that, but they also don't tell you about the trade-offs that come with those, with those better uh, functionalities. Bitcoin is actually at the protocol level slow, dumb, and pretty stupid. Like it, it only does a very few things, but it does them very well. And that's all Bitcoin at the protocol level needs to do. It doesn't need to be able to uh, do very complex computations at the protocol level. We should probably put that up the stack, the second and third layers. So Bitcoin. Well, gold's a pretty stupid metal too. But exactly. You know, so it, it only needs to do very few things. It needs to assure. It needs exactly. It needs to assure that any individual can download the blockchain participate in the network and send a transaction without it being censored and in a peer-to-peer fashion. That's all it needs to do. And then everything else from there is gravy. Everybody else, in my opinion, came in, saw how, and that's the thing. These are open source softwares that can be forked and you can easily spin up your own cryptocurrency. And people saw that and saw it as a way to make money and are trying to replicate Bitcoin success. But I would argue. Yeah, those are just right? Yeah. Tell me about the, tell me about the, give me some background or give me some, insight into the you know i read about you know bitcoin scams and i I, again i don't even know these exchanges and where some guy walks away dies with 190 million with the codes then they say oh maybe he didn't die after all right maybe he's down there with jeffrey epstein and his friend you know who knows right so so uh tell me about the um tell me about the risk factors that the media loves to present just like they like to talk about tungsten filled gold bars right Yes. Um, exchange hacks throughout uh, have been the bane of Bitcoin's existence throughout its history. Obviously, Mt. Gox being the biggest. Bitfinex was hacked right. a few years ago. Um, and that's, yeah, it's a lot of FUD around that. A lot of people uh, see that exchange are getting hacked and sort of push that on Bitcoin and say Bitcoin getting, is getting hacked. But that's not the case. Bitcoin, like gold, is a, is a bearer asset. It's a digital bearer asset. When you have, right. when you have Bitcoin on an exchange, you are... Basically, it's like having Bitcoin in a vault. You're trusting that, that the people that operate that vault are going right. to... Right. So gold's safe, the vault's not. Yes, and exactly. And so when you have Bitcoin, what you should do is take it into your own possession. And it, it demands extreme ownership. It is a bearer asset at the end of the day. And then there's those horror stories like, these have nothing to do with Bitcoin, but the guy who had all his codes on a hard disk and his wife you know, put it in the trash. And I'm thinking... You know, if I had my codes on hard disk, I'd have about 20 hard disks, right? I'd have thumb drives. I'd have all sorts of shit tucked away. I, there's just no way. Hard drives fail, right? What was he thinking? So you'll like this story. I don't know if you have time to go back and listen to a podcast, but we had a guy by the name of John Doe on a few months ago, and he was actually one of the biggest drug dealers. Yeah, David Jane Rowe, right? Got in a lot of trouble. Yeah. They got in a lot. Of, well, this guy did get in a lot of trouble. He was a drug dealer on the Silk Road, and he was one of the biggest dealers uh on the website is he the guy who got thrown in the who's for silk road i can't remember no not ross albrecht um this is just right that's the guy. this was an individual dealer on the site and he actually wound up getting arrested for uh something not to do with the silk road something to do a meat space of him dealing in person he went to jail and they took all of his personal possessions where they like put it in bags and they keep it uh for you and give it back to you when you get out so he spent four years in jail and they put his USB with all of his Bitcoin that he made from the Silk Road on it. And they literally handed his Bitcoin back to him like when he got out of jail. They had no idea it was on this little USB stick. So he was. 
<laughs> he was he was forced to hold all of his Bitcoin from like twenty dollars to twelve hundred. Oh yeah, I, you know, I'd, if you could give me Bitcoin for twenty bucks to let me out with it at twelve hundred, I'd go to jail. Right. I, I, you know, I wouldn't hang myself, but um, yeah, yeah, that's interesting. But that's um, it shows the power of Bitcoin. Unbelievable stories. There must be some spectacular stories of now. You know, I did a podcast the other day with Max Kaiser and Stacy Herbert, and, um, and they were very early adopters. They must be stinking rich, right? I mean, just truly extraordinarily wealthy now. Yeah, they're uh, they're big Bitcoin believers. They've been around for right, a while. Right, and they've been it for a long time. I mean, Max has been ranting. So, and given that they started life with with some resources, right? This is not the 12 year old in middle school, this, uh, who also, a few of them have done well, apparently. Um, but these guys must have thrown a lot of money at the start. And when you multiply, what, 70,000% or something, you, you, you win. Yeah, some people have gotten insanely rich from this stuff. And there must be people who have totally liquidated, right? They've just oh, yeah. done it and then they've... There was uh, the infamous bear whale. Uh, he sold 30,000 Bitcoin at $300. And I was around then. We all watched uh, the order books. I forget what it, I think it was. Okay, coin, maybe. We all watched the order books as uh, they ate away at 30,000 Bitcoin. This dude sold at uh, at $300. See, you know, people ask me, I, I, God, I do so many podcasts now, but uh, Tony Greer from TG Macro, he, he asked me, do you have Bitcoin? And he asked me two questions. I said, no and no. He couldn't believe it. And I said, here's what would have happened. I, I think I first started paying attention to Bitcoin was back in the single digit dollar value, right? Um, but it was so wacky looking, right? It was so fringy looking. You had to, it had to be a religious faith. By the way, you have to have religious faith to hang on to anything good, right? You buy Microsoft at the IPO. The, the temptation to take profits on that would have been overwhelming the whole way, right? And so if I had bought Bitcoin at 10 and it went up to 100, I would have sold. I said, look, this is this creepy, weird currency that so-and-so convinced me to buy. Tenfold, I'm taking it, I'm done. And, th and then I would have been in therapy for the rest of my life. Right? <laughs> so I don't regret not buying it because I would have been the guy who sold, you know, $800 worth of founder shares of Apple. Now, there's uh, I wouldn't have... there's many of those stories out there. And no, some... Oh, there's countless yeah. stories out there. Yeah, well, right. be. that's the thing. The volatility is really jarring to some people. Um, maybe... Oh, it's way worse than anything I've ever seen. Yeah, well, doesn't it make sense, though? We're trying to discover a new digital oh. monetary good. Wouldn't it be? So, so bit, someone was talking about how Bitcoin had settled down and that was a problem. I have mixed emotions on that because if Bitcoin's going to work, it's got to settle down. Yeah, at some point, but I don't think that's going to be anytime soon. Right. But if, it's, if it doesn't settle down, it becomes just sort of the speculator's playground. And so, so it's not going to serve this sort of the universal purpose you know, if I go to the store tomorrow and, and, and my groceries cost 20% more because some whale dumped Bitcoin, it's a problem, right? Yeah, well, it's got a currency needs a whole value. Yeah, that's the, uh, the, but does it go through a continuum, right? Does it start out as a collectible like it was in 2010 where it didn't have a price then move to um, a store of value where you're literally using it as a saving account? Well, and then when they're... it's more of a store of value. Yes, right. right? But it's more but of a store of value now. What's that? So it's more of a story, of, or it, the overwhelming use case now is store of value, but that's not to say that medium of exchange won't come in the future, right? Right, but for example, the dollar would not be a, the reserve currency if 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 you could lose half of its value in a year. 
Yes, yes. Right? So, so Bitcoin has to settle down before, if it's going to mainstream, I think. Oh, I agree. I, I would agree with that. Uh, but that will, that'll, right? it will just take time. Here's the question. Will the Bitcoin owners, will that then trigger a big sell-off again, right? Uh, it, it's, it's, it's kind of a paradox in that on the one hand, I think a lot of owners of Bitcoin are not doing it as a store of value. They're doing it because they want to get rich. I think you'd be... Uh... So the question the equilibrium price where the people holding it are willing to hold it at that price and not worry about the fact that it's not going up yeah i would i think you'd be surprised at the amount of fanatic long-term holders we call them hodlers here it's a funny story behind that yeah we call them hodlers in gold too yeah um there's i mean anecdotally i don't know the exact number i know there's very very strong contingent on twitter at least and i've met very serious uh, long-term hodlers in life. There are people very uh, that view Bitcoin as an opportunity to revolt against uh, the the fiat banking system. That uh, they they. Oh yeah. So that's why I'm not in any way hostile to it. I'll tell you what you guys do do to me. That's painful. I think you're um, cannibalizing safe haven asset investors. Hey, I'm. I a, think gold. I'm a I'm a big believer in the gold bugs and the Bitcoiners should get along. No, no, I totally agree with that, actually. Um, but, but, but I think gold would be higher if Bitcoin didn't exist. I think it's sapping up demand. I think actually GLD was invented to sap up demand so that people wouldn't grab the gold. I, I think GLD was give give the proletariat their paper gold, and 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 they can of course make money off GLD stuff like that. But um, um, I think. The, the rush to gold in the absence of Bitcoin, in the absence of GLD, there'd be a physical gold squeeze that would be pretty hard. Oh, I don't disagree with so that. In some sense, I'm a consequence. My world's a consequence of your world, in some sense. No, I definitely agree with that. I mean, it's opportunity cost, right? At the end of the day, you, you got to decide where you want to park your wealth. And I think moving forward, at least me personally, I, like when it comes viewing the option to store my wealth in gold or Bitcoin, I'm going to choose Bitcoin just because uh, it's easier to send. I, It's hard to get physical gold and then protect it. It's just Bitcoin's easier to protect, send. It's more divisible and actually more ex- right. more extendable as well. Right. And then at the same time, gold has that history. Exactly. It has the Lindy effects. And... Right. If you were to say, look, one of these two will be zero in 20 years, you know which one you'd have to bet on. Right. Bitcoin, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so that it's kind of a conservative versus non-conservative wealth preservation, right? Yeah, but that's there's not. It's not to say there's not room for both, right? Because oh, I think there is room for both. Yeah, yeah, and that's yeah. There's just like we have a euro and a dollar, right? Yeah. No. Well, there's I I like to have both options. The more uh, hard assets that people can. Save their purchasing so power. So, what year the better. Did you start buying Bitcoin? Oh, it's you, young squire. It's a party event. It's a very, uh, very personal question. No, I got, I got into Bitcoin when I was in college. I was studying economics in college um, at DePaul University, and uh, I was what year? 2012. Um, I was taking. You got some Bitcoin. Uh, no, I was a poor college student, mind you, and I, I, I learned about it. I actually did read up on it before I dumped a bunch of money into it. Um, uh, okay. but, uh, yeah, I was in college studying economics. I think I stumbled into it because I'm writing paper on monetary policy and I was like Googling, uh, 
exotic <laughs> googling exotic monetary God policies system was run by idiots well, right well we at the same time i was working at a managed futures fund and so we were in, in a fund of funds and so we had a bunch of ctas indexed in our fund and my job was to write our our commentaries on why the fund performed the way it did which entailed me speaking with all the cios of the hedge funds we were indexing and and also entailed me following the fed and other central banks around the world for three three years and that's so i was learning about bitcoin and studying this in practice in real life and yes i, I quickly realized that the people that the, <laughs> people that think they're the smartest men in the room had no idea what they're doing um right i was like 23 the what the hell? right there's a there's a name a dunning kruger effect I think where uh, the people are still i can't hear you too great right now i was you were slipping out on me too all right is that better seems fine to me you that's were not going out enough to worry me but um no that's perfect um you're back now what were we talking about oh yeah my story yeah that's how i got into bitcoin yeah. i lost i lost faith in the fed very early on luckily i was yeah we're on the same page there i was uh i was a senior in high school in the fall of 2008 taking a economics elective actually uh, and it was literally right when lehman was collapsing and my teacher was like oh boys this is uh this is a big thing and so I went to college with like a well, I have I have some funny uh, on on record stuff. I sent a an email to my former close friend and housemate um, Rick Sherlin at Goldman back in Mar May of two May six two thousand two, and I can see the email trail below it. And I had said something to him, but I can't see that. But he said he said you know there's always risk. What is it that has you especially on edge right now? This is in 2002. I wrote about a five-page email, and I laid out the subprime banking crisis in, in all its glory. And the, the one thing I got wrong, I said General Electric was going to go south. I said, I said General Motors, um, um, whatever that GMAC, whatever the heck that the funding one was going to go south. I said the banks were going to go south. And the one I missed was I thought JP Morgan was going to be the tip of the spear. And that turned out to be precisely wrong. <laughs> um, and, uh, and then, uh, and then what, five years later it did, it, it actually shows you how early the subprime risk was showing up. It, it, the subprime risk was actually showing up in the late nineties, believe it or not. So then one day I'm standing in front of my organic chem class and it was March of 2007. And I always tell stories. I, I tell stories about what my kids did that were outlandish, you know, tell stories about shit I did that was outlandish, you know, whether I was going to dive into a, a ported potty to get my watch back, you know, stuff like that. And uh, I turned to the class and I said, sort of out of the blue, I said, the banking system's about to go down now. And they looked at me in utter amazement. Now, this is March of 07. Now, there's only one indicator that I know of that was saying that. And it was called the market ABX index. It was a derivatives index, and it was starting to tank. It was it flat as a pancake, and then it just started to tank. And there's this woman named Tanta, codename, who was writing about stuff that was going on inside the pipes of the banking system that was bad. So I turned to the class, I tell them this, and I said, I literally said, which I can't believe, I said, you might find yourself someday not being able to get money out of an ATM machine, right? I can't believe I actually came up with that winner because that was very close to what we got to. So then it <clears throat> turns out in 2009, I had the same group all over again in an, a senior honors thesis class. We meet once a week in the first day of class, I said, and it was February of 2009 now, right? 
So it's just a complete shitstorm happening. No one could miss it. And I said to the class, I said, did I not tell you that the banking system was going to collapse? And they said, yes, you did. And I said, did any of your econ professors, many double major, and did they tell you? And they said, no. And I said, what are those assholes paid for? Right? So then um, my, I had guest lectures through the semester. My first guest lecture for honors thesis chemistry was the CEO of Morgan Stanley Bank. <laughs> and he spent two hours talking to the kids about the mortgage crisis. He had cut his own teeth on generating two million fold levered mortgage-backed security funds. He said, he left in 06 because he saw it coming. He said, I have got to get out of here. Well, so, it seems like we're right back where we were in, in that period of time. It's very much, and they say the banks are safe. I don't think they are because corporate debt is considered ground zero. Yeah, the CLO market is crazy right now. The CLO, uh, uh, oh my God, the, the leveraged loan market, which is basically payday lenders for, for companies, um, is, is totally cramped up. And, uh, and, and the, 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 the leverage inside corporate America is so huge, well, you know, underfunded pensions, all that stuff. And, and therefore, the, the, the question is, could the banks possibly be safe when their corporate clients are all not safe? And the answer is no, I don't think so. No, yeah. I, I mean, what's going on with this repo market right now? Did you see there was a glitch in the Fed's systems yesterday and direct deposits were having problems getting out? Um, oh, I didn't even see it. I was busy yesterday, so I was I saw nothing yesterday. Yeah. So tell me about that. What was the glitch? Uh, apparently, a few banks were affected by a network glitch at the Federal Reserve, which prevented them from getting out direct deposits in a timely manner. Um, oh, that's interesting. So the, so, so... I'm sure your readers, listeners know this, but the, but back in, I think it was September of 18, there was this big hiccup where the repo rate went from 2%, steady as can be, to 9% one morning. Yeah, we've been and covering... this at all, right? Yeah, we've been covering that topic pretty heavily here. We actually right. just... Right, and so, so it's like when you're, uh, it's like when your, your cardiologist says, oh, shit, what was that? And then they go, oh, shit, there it is again, right? You're in trouble at that point. So I, my theory, I asked tons of people what was happening. I put out an eight Twitter, I, I, and I collected in my year in review, I collected all the answers <clears throat> and they were all delivered with great confidence. And, and there are dozens of answers. And what I think the bottom line is that the bank is an emergent system and it is so complicated with so many feedback loops that it just occasionally has a cardiac arrest. And right now it's having cardiac arrests and the Fed doesn't know what they're doing. They just know that they have to keep shoving money into the banking system as fast as they can. And they're pretending like it's normal and it's not normal, right? It's like if your cardiologist said, yeah, that's spiky shit. Don't worry about it. That, that's, that'll pass. That's indigestion, right? It's not. No, the uh, most recent episode I recorded a, a man named Parker Lewis, uh, he used to work for Kyle Bass. He's like a Fed mensch. He's been following the Fed very intently, reading their... So where does he work now? Why did he leave Kyle? He works at Unchained Capital um, and works... Uh, it's a Bitcoin... Uh, oh, my God. It's Dark Bitcoin Sider. Okay. Nah, he's, a, um, he's a light sider. I love Kyle. Yeah, with Kyle occasionally. He's, a, he's, a, he's an interesting character. You should ask him about Parker. Um, so Parker... Parker, we had a very good conversation. Basically, to simplify, like the Fed unwound seven hundred billion dollars of their balance sheet over the course of eighteen months, 
and didn't expect a liquidity crisis to, to pop up anywhere when every dollar is levered out like 39 times. It just it makes sense that right. there would be a liquidity crisis, right? So I don't know if they're stupid for not knowing this had to eventually come to this or if they're stupid or cowardly for not being able to take the pain that's somehow to get from here to normal. It's like, it's, you know, you were in college. Sometimes you just got to hurl, right? (laughs) You're down that 18th beer and it's time to let her rip. And if you somehow think you get to skip that part, you're dreaming. Yeah, it seems, but it's, it's, it's as if like they're desperately afraid to let that happen because they think it'll all die. Well, so here's what I what, what I think they're afraid of. So I this thing I write, um, I, I realized when I got done writing this year's that absolutely every last chapter was more about social change than anything. So I wrote a lot less about screwy IPOs. I didn't even talk about WeWork, right? You know, and I realized that's all kind of pre-game ceremony stuff right now. So we're seeing all sorts of wacky stuff, but until the first kickoff, right? Until that that game's in play, and all of a sudden we start seeing that thing. Uh, exact revenge on the speculators. Uh, None of it matters. It's just noise. And so I didn't write about it this year. And so, but I realized that what I wrote about every single chapter had some component. I I wrote about Bitcoin, right? I'm not a hodler. I wrote about Bitcoin because it's about social change, right? I write about gold, social change. Modern monetary theory is about social change. Is it really? (laughs) Is it about control? yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's rising socialism. It's social, it's Marxism on the rise. And so, uh, and, and so, uh, uh, um, I, I think the fed is terrified of the next recession because they know that when that, when Joe six pack is put out of work again, and they're bailing out the banks again, that it could get violent. I think we're, I think we're, I've heard historians say we're pre-Civil War setup right now. I've, if you look at it, the rift is big. I've heard that too. If you look at what's going on in Virginia right now, it's uh, it's getting scary right. down there, right? And, and, and I watch Adam Schiff, who I consider to be one of the most repugnant people inside the Beltway, which is, which is like winning Wimbledon, right? Yeah, it's hard um, to do. It's hard to do that. And, you know, it's a bias, right? I have a political bias, but he seems repugnant to me. Um, he was giving a talk and people started yelling from the audience, liar, liar, liar. And they were disruptive as hell. And as much as I hate shift, I go, this is not good. And it's not good for several reasons. One, it's just a sign of the social fabric tearing apart. The second thing is what bothered me more. And, and some of your followers may be offended by this, but I think that's a tactic of the left, not the right. So like the in, left shouts out speaker, right? And, and throws milkshakes on people for, for, for being right-wing and stuff like that. So I find the left's behavior to have been pretty appalling since the 2016 election. They, when they woke up and found out that their favorite candidate was beat by the person they consider the most repugnant person on the planet, they lost their shit. And so they decided that there are no rules and that we're going to change this world no matter whether we're doing it the right way or the wrong way, we're going to make it happen, right? So it's, it's a kind of a noble cause syndrome, it's called. And I, so I think the left lost their mind. I think the right's going, holy shit, we got a guy in the White House that no one expected. We kind of won, right? The, the bipartisan message of Trump, bipartisan support should come, is that the two parties try to feed us dog shit. And we said, we're picking them this time. 
and in some sense, left or right, you should say, you know, that's kind of a win. And it's also a message to the guys inside the Beltway, don't push us. We will vote you out. And we will vote in a bad looking person if we have to. I, I actually kind of like Trump now. I mean, I pulled the lever with a very shaky hand that day, um, only because Hillary was 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 worse than Adam Schiff. Um, but I could have voted for Bernie because they would have neutered him. He wouldn't have done any damage. Um, I could have voted. I was written up in The Guardian for supporting. You're not going to believe this. The, 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 the Washington bureau chief of The Guardian picked this up off Twitter. He picked up half the story. He says, I'm writing about Elizabeth Warren. This is like 2000, I don't know, 14 or something, 15. It was a long time ago. Um, he said, I'm wondering what this Elizabeth Warren thing is. And, and, and I saw that you support her. Now, what he didn't know is I used to chat with her late at night by email. And I'm a, I'm a Reagan Republican, right? Mm -hmm. and, but we used to chat late at night. And I wrote some blogs for her and stuff like that. But, but, uh, but I said, it's weirder than that. Um, because I also support Ron Paul and, and his brain explodes. And, and I said, it's because I think they're both honest. I'm not so sure about Elizabeth Warren now, although I haven't given up on her, but she's gone super lefty, scary lefty. Maybe she'd pivot to the middle later, but boy, it's her, her multi-gazillion dollar plans are scary to a, to a libertarian type. Um, yeah. but in any event, so I, these are repugnant people, but the left lost their mind, the right hadn't. But now when I see those tactics coming out of the right, I go, okay, the war is on now, right? Yeah, it's pretty fucking scary. Um, right. What, uh, do you think there's room for a centrist here? Like, are people just drawn too far to the polar opposites of each other? Well, right we'll now? find out, right? We're going to do the experiment in 2020. Um, I, I, I think... Do the I Democrats have the... I'm pretty sure Trump gets reelected. I, I, I would uh, say I, so too. I, 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 so, so the question I asked my left leaning friends, which is what I would call everybody. Um, I asked them, what demographic voted for Trump who won't vote for him now? And I can't name one. Yeah, I maybe I can't think of a demographic that will turn on him. Well, if the Democrats had the balls to put Tulsi in front, like I think about yeah, voting for I've her. I've been supporting Tulsi for, I've been telling friends about Tulsi for about four years. I go, who? And I go, and this woman in Hawaii, you got to pay attention to Same. Her. I have tweets from like 2016, like, Tulsi, you should run for president. Right, like, Tulsi, and she's hotter than hot, too. Oh, my <laughs> God, what a double win, right? What a double win. But but no one knew who she was, but I'm going, this woman. And I realized the other day during a podcast, I must, she must have already been running because there's no way I would have spotted her if she wasn't projecting out there, right? Right. But I told friends, Tulsi Gabbard, Hawaii, watch her, watch her, watch her. And then she did the Rogan podcast. And I think that launched her. I think Rogan can launch a career. And uh, that's my dream one, by the way. If I get a Rogan podcast, no offense, Marty, you're not Joe Rogan. Um, if I get a Rogan podcast, I then get on the boat with Frodo, head off with Elven Chicks to good places. Right? <laughs> I, would, um, uh, I would love to see you on Rogan. Yeah. It would be so much fun. And I've watched people say, you got to get calm. You got to get calm. But it's just white noise to him. He's getting presidential candidates. He'd, he'd have to, there'd have to be something to shake the world. Uh, he follows me. So we're connected. We, but we it's can a make, loose connection. We can make this happen. Uh, he might listen to this podcast. You don't know. Maybe. Joe, I want a goddamn podcast. If you're listening, um, I'll do anything for it. I'll pay, I'll pay for my own travel. Um, do you think the Democrats uh, are going to sell sabotage again? Like, I feel like Tulsi is honestly the I, only. Oh, yeah, I do think so. Yeah. They're not going to let Tulsi near anything. 
Um, Andrew Yang, they're trying to stuff down now. Apparently, I didn't watch the debate, but I saw a bunch of polls that suggested he won. Yeah. And then I, the newscasters didn't even mention it, like they didn't mention Ron Paul in 08. I was on Ron Paul's homepage of his website in 08 as an endorser, right? Boss. That was cool. cool. That was awesome. I had to have, I got to have dinner with him one night, just by chance, not for being on his website. Just, I was in a meeting, a, a, a investors meeting, a investing conference. I was speaking at, and, uh, and he was the, the sort of the keynote speaker, and they 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 sat me next to him at uh, at dinner. And he's such a sincere, soft-spoken, humble guy. I would yeah. love to have seen Ron Paul president. Oh my God, he's he would have been so good. He got dicked over too. I mean, there's plenty he of YouTube videos. Everybody, they wouldn't mention him by name on Fox News. It was like Lord Voldemort, right? They yeah. totally screwed. Him. Do you Just think like this, Bernie, right? Do you think the system's sustainable though? You feel like we're at the tail end of this form well, of this has democracy? The turning thing going, right? Has yeah. that fourth turning? Field? Not only here, all over the world. Yeah, yeah. So I finished my year in review, and I said I, I pointed out that there was a lot of violence. I said violence is trending. When I had mentioned that the central banks had opened the Overton window by claiming that their QE was normal, I said, you're opening the Overton window. It's not normal. Overton window is the window of possibility, right? I said, the populace is opening the Overton window too now, and the violence is trending. And so I think, you know, just like the French Revolution, the American Revolution, they, they come in waves. I, I, gee, something feels wrong to me. My, I'm, I, it's, like, it's like I'm in a thunderstorm, and I can, the hair on the back of my neck is standing up. I completely agree. What, like, and my conclusions. I so I write about all the shit, and I try to be funny. I'm snarky as shit. I'm irreverent, but I get to the conclusion, and I go deep, dark, and there's no humor, and it's all. This is why I am so so pessimistic, and not the 140 pages of stuff that wasn't that. And then I get to the end, and I just go bam, and I hit him with this freight train of of darkness you think it'll wake people up well it wasn't by design so i write the whole thing and then i write the conclusion last and i got to the end and because because i had inadvertently sort of lizard brained my way through social change i got to the end and i realized that what my lizard brain had done is that it, it kept drawing me back to the questions about social change and the movements and the and and, 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 and and things that are in the air. And, and so I realized the conclusion is, is that shit is happening. And it's, I, I'm terrified of new corporate America. I'm a, I'm a capitalist, right? But, but, you know, General Motors, U.S. Steel, General Electric, they were huge, powerful companies. I never felt like they controlled me. But now I feel like the corporate world controls me. So Facebook controls us. Um, um, uh, Google controls us. They don't just know everything. But you know, we could we could easily reach a point where you're late on your health care payment and your car ceases to function because you owe them. This is why we need Bitcoin. I don't want that. Neither do I. That's, That's neither do I. That's why well, I focus on Bitcoin. They walk in China, the cameras pick you up by facial recognition, and by the time you step on the curb, you've had money deducted from your bank account. Well, that's the beauty of Bitcoin. It's a push system. They can't pull it from your bank account, right? And Well, I, I, I'm with you. That's why I'm sympathetic to it. But God damn it, they're, they're going to squeeze you hard. Oh, right? I know. You know so 
who's, who's a cash economy, right? If you get audited and your spending habits don't match your, your IRS report, they're going to hammer you, right? Yeah, yeah. So, so the Bitcoiners, if they end up on the, 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 the ugly, the, the wrong end of the ugly stick, I, you, to have to beat sovereign states, that's a war, right? That's not just a skirmish. Oh, no, I know. But I think it's uh, an imperative war that needs to be fought. We're heading into... I'm totally with you. We're heading into the digital age. We have have a decision. We either have China's surveillance economy exported to the rest of the world, or we defend freedom in the digital age with tools like Bitcoin. Well, the other problem we have is we are spending so much more than we are creating. No. Our, our our the growth in our debt is you know five percent above the growth in our GDP. You can't grow five. You can't grow debt five percent above GDP. No, in I any mean, system. you're doomed. Yeah, and we're we're making shit too. We're producing shit like and... right. What is Twitter? What is Twitter? Facebook, Netflix, Google. Um, what do they create? Amazon even is just a. It, it's it's a great great company. But it's not U.S. steel. It's not the standard oil. Yeah, right? making little trinkets like. Uh, so making... Amazon wealth aggregates. It doesn't create as much as it aggregates wealth, right? Yeah, it's because in, in the got rich off Amazon, they think, well, that created wealth. No, it didn't. It aggregated it. You are now wealthier. Great, congratulations. Yeah, well, but they don't heat houses. They don't build houses. They don't. They don't. They don't feed you. They don't do the things that we have to get done. Now, Apple does. But I think Apple's RCA in 1929. I, Apple went to replace Jobs, and they replaced him with Scully again. Right? Uh, Apple's dead. I mean, the I mean, they're not dead, obviously, but the uh, post-Steve Jobs Apple is, is not up to snuff, and I don't, I don't think... Oh, their Tim, products suck. Dude, the, the keyboard... Sorry for calling you dude. The keyboard on the last uh, MacBook... Me, dude, I, I know people dude all day. I think they're <laughs> from John Elway. I picked it from John Elway, actually. I know where I got it. He walked past a mean lineman one day, and the guy was looking snarly, and Elway says, hey, dude. (laughs) (laughs) Ever since that moment, I've been calling people dude. Um, Everything sucks. Yeah, well, is is that because there's uh, a misallocation of capital enabled by Fed policy? I would say yes. Well, but even I'm just talking Apple, right? They went from the magnetic connect to now to a plug-in that, that's going to break your computer when your Labrador hits it. Well, they, that's you now need adapters. Why is that? Because they're, they're driven by the quarterly balance sheet, the quarterly numbers, right? They're just, exactly. They have extremely yeah. high time preference. That's another reason why I like Bitcoin because it helps people refocus time preference, low versus right. high time preference. Right. Nobody wants to. Nobody wants to build beautiful things that take a while anymore. It's all plastic crap. You know, when the Berlin Wall fell, I had two thoughts almost back to back. So I had grown up my whole life thinking that wall was permanent. The sense of permanence, the Berlin Wall was it, right? The the Cold War was permanent. I had grown up in the Cold War, and then the wall fell. So the first thought was, "Wow, just truly wow! I can't believe it." The second thought I had, though, very, very quickly was, who is going to control us now? There was these two forces that were incredibly balanced. And we couldn't go into the Middle East because we would cause World War III. And they couldn't go into the Middle East because they would cause World War III. So it's this stalemate on all these fronts. And all of a sudden, boom, the Soviet Union's gone. 
And I remember Rogoff claiming that uh, that we would save the Soviet Union with a Marshall Plan-like approach, right? Fuck Henry so Rogoff. Failed to understand this. The reason the Marshall Plan was there was because of the Soviet Union, and we didn't have to help the Soviet Union because there was no Soviet Union to to protect against. So, he's, so now now he's just trying to push NERP on the world. He went from that bad idea to yeah, this NERP, one. Right, NERP, hang him like Mussolini. Yeah, you put a you put a NERP on my ass. I'm 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 voting for guillotine shit. <laughs> right, it's uh. NERP is just insane. All right, let's dive into that. Why do you think NERP's insane? Well, you can't charge people to lend money, right? That's not the free market. There's not a shred of free market in that. You, you, you shouldn't, the free market would never even let you lend money for less than inflation, right? So the question is, well, how do you, how do you get NERP then? And the answer is because they jerry-rigged the system by statute you have to buy certain kinds of bonds, and if they make them go negative, then you got to buy those bonds, right? The, the various companies that by statute have to buy those, they buy them. And then I saw this great interview that sealed the deal by getting Mike Green, and he, he talked about why, for example, Argentinian 100-year bonds, which are the stupidest thing ever, right? I would rather have a payday loan operation lending to crack horse than, than buy Argentinian bonds. And and, um, and and they've gone up. They went up seventy five percent last year. The capital gain on Argentinian hundred year bonds went up seventy percent. They will not. They will not go a decade without defaulting. So no. whoever's buying them, they're, they're trading Pokemon cards. They issued those um, bonds last year, didn't they? Yeah. And they've yeah, already defaulted. Yeah. yeah, and you know, Treasury yields yields on Portugal and Hungary and and Spain are below. 10-year U.S. Treasuries, right? These are nuts, right? The bond market is completely and utterly broken. The question is, how is this happening? Well, Mike Green points out that you have indexed market cap weighted index bond funds, just like market cap weighted index stock funds. So we know now, if you are paying attention, that the reason the fangs have taken off like crazy is because because the bigger the market cap, the more money gets dumped into them. And so you get this virtuous cycle up, which will eventually lead to a virtuous, a vicious cycle down, right? It, it, the reverse trip is exactly the same in reverse. But, uh, but the bond funds are the same. That's the part I didn't understand. Such that as these bonds went to lower and lower interest rates, they got more and more of the money dumped into them because of the, the, the market cap of the bond. I can't remember the term. I keep forgetting this term, whatever the, the, the price of the bond goes up. So more money goes to buy that bond. So the stupider the bond, the, 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 the more overvalued it becomes, the more money goes into it, right? This is, an, this is not buy low, sell high stuff. And so what happens is, is that now once, apparently once you cross zero, the algorithms go nuts. Yeah, it's uh, Einstein's. Into those bonds. Did you read How Howard Mark's letter a couple months ago? I try to read everything Howard puts out. Depends which one. Well, the one where he was talking about NERP and maybe Einstein was wrong that uh, compounding interest is not the eighth wonder of the world. Because... I've, I've made that argument for forever. There's there's nothing exponential that's sustainable. And guy named Albert Bartlett at Berkeley has talked about our failure to understand the exponential function is a fundamental problem. Nothing can grow exponentially. 
So it's it's all very linear. Yeah. And 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 so compound interest is not the greatest invention of all time. It's it's great while it's compounding, but then there'll be a reset. What the average person doesn't understand is that over the 20th century or over 150 years since the end of the 19th century, that stocks have returned about the same as the GDP. Over time. And that makes And that makes us. And it's a very low number. You inflation adjust, you take out fees, taxes, all that crap, you get about three to half, four percent. And that's what you used to get in the 17th century and in the 18th century. Those were sort of the rates you could get on bonds and stocks. And, and you know, uh, uh, Ben Graham and, um, said, look, anyone who, anyone who thinks they can make more on equities than on bonds in the long run is delusional. So going back 150 years, do you think stuff was less volatile, prices more stable back then? Well, we had a gold standard, so that helps. So there's no, you don't have to deconvolute inflation. You have to pull it out. There's something I post on Twitter that someone else posted to me just two days ago, I think it was, called the Chapwood Index. Yeah, yes. Yeah, the so Chapwood we were... Index is kind of like a, a shadowstats.com inflation index where they look at 50 cities, and they look at 500 items. This is a classic basket of goods. And the inflation rates in these 50 cities have been running at 10%, right? And I wouldn't have put it that high, but it sure as hell isn't J. Powell, J. Bo's stupid 1.7. That's moronic. No, it's, I mean, the CPI is, Rudy is a very big proponent of this. The, the CPI is a, a terrible metric. Number. Yeah. It's... And the other thing, here's one thing that no, I've seen no one talk about. I don't know why. I talk about it all the time for 10 years now. Um, no one talks about the accelerated rate of depreciation of a good. And my favorite story, I broke a goddamn blender. It's one of those big ones. You drop it on your foot, you're going to the ER, right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, and, uh, and I dropped it and I, it shattered. And so I had to buy a new blender. That blender was at least 40 years old. The new blender lasted about three years. <laughs> All at four. That means that there was a tenfold inflation correction needed in terms of the cost per function. And that's never accounted for. It's never accounted for, right? The fact that your client lasts for five, six, seven, eight years, that's it. Never accounted for. Similar to shrinkflation almost in a different way. It's similar to shrinkflation, but this one doesn't get accounted for. And so the fact that, you know, when I was a kid, if I got a toy for Christmas, I played with it all year. The average toy for Christmas now is a life expectancy of about New Year's. Yeah, well, this goes back to time preference and like, easy money leading to a misallocation of capital that makes us build shitty products. Like people are going to have access to right. those loans. So they're also because people can't afford the good stuff. So they buy the shitty stuff and they don't realize they're in a vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, let's talk about this vicious cycle, right? To keep up with inflation, the common man, if he is able to do so is forced to do that via mutual funds, stocks, bonds, whatever. Right. Um, do you think the that, common man doesn't even that but, no, the uh, common man, couldn't afford a $400 emergency expense, but should yeah. we like in the digital in for humans, like should we have to chase yield this way or should we have a monetary good that just allows us to maintain purchasing power over time, at least maintain it, maybe grow well, that purchasing you know, power. Being hodlers, we, we agree on this one, right? This is, you know, the idea that, so, so, the central bankers who say inflation is too low, they're, they're liars or morons or crooks. 
they're not they're not being honest right they're not being honest to themselves they know full well that, that inflation is a bad thing yeah, paul volcker before he died said two percent is way too high right rest um, in peace you know the the, the 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 federal reserve act says they have to have a stable currency they didn't say a stable inflation rate they said a stable currency right and the stable currency is zero and many of us would argue no it's actually a net it's a deflation because of technological gain right yeah no it's uh it is but like that's what i think is aiding to this uh increase in violence and what's tearing at the social fabric yeah. right People are mad. Left, right, doesn't matter. Everybody's mad. But, but they blame politicians. What, do you believe that the core of the problem is the Fed and not the politicians? Well, it's certainly the Fed. Because, part of it's because the Fed is the only ones who actually have the kind of centralized power to make a difference, right? So the Fed could hike rates when they have to be hiked and take the pain. Vol- Volcker did. Nobody's done it Volker since Volcker. Yeah. Don't forget, our national debt was peanuts compared to now. So Volcker had slack to work with. And Volcker also was looking at this inflationary effect. It was just huge. And it wasn't just inflation of 10%, which we just talked about, but it was the expectations of a huge inflation too. So he, people, I remember that period. It was painful. It was painful, that kind of inflation. Volcker realized that even if his job is to take care of banks, he had to deal with this inflation. Yeah. Yeah, there was not so self-sacrificing as much as just that's what history was calling upon him to do yeah it was long gas lines and stuff like that going on right but but powell's cowardly cowardly people thought he was tough he's cowardly actually someone said uh druckenmiller the other day i watched an interview and he said he said powell's like yelling but not as good and i'm going oh my god oh god my head just exploded (sighs) well I sort of feel for them though. There's like they they have a they're just forced to keep the charade alive at this point. And you're too generous. I don't. No. Do you think their their job is to not screw this up? Yeah, exactly. Right? Their job is to you know it's like it's like uh, feeling bad for the general who couldn't make the call on dropping guys on Omaha Beach, right? Yeah. He can't be the general if he can't look and say, look, we're going to lose a ton of guys. This is going to be un- this going to be ghastly. Yes. But we have to do this, right? And I'm not sure we did, right? I, I, you can debate that, but if, if you realize that you got to put guys on Omaha Beach, you can't recoil from it because it's going to be ugly. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. It's a very good point. Right? That's what leaders are, right? You know, they say opportunity makes leaders. It does not. Opportunity reveals leaders. It feels like we don't have any very many good leaders today. Well, certainly not inside the Beltway. No, definitely not inside the I never thought I'd reach a point. You know, I was never a big Obama detractor. I was so impressed with his ability to be at the mic. He's better than Clinton, in my opinion. Um, and I, I, he wasn't appalling, in my opinion. He bombed too many countries for my taste, especially for a liberal. I think a liberal should not be bombing countries, right? But he, if the neocons are country bombers, the liberals should not be. But he bombed the hell out of everybody. That wasn't good. Um, but I never thought I'd reach a point where I'd say, holy shit, I take Obama back right now. Right. I, I, he you looks so? awfully good compared to the loonies that we're looking at now. Well, I don't By take the way, lo- the people have to pay attention to the modern monetary theory, right? That shit is coming. And it's just bad news. It is Marxism wrapped up in garbage, right? It's, 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 it's 
three-week-old sushi. It's just bad. Oh, why? Why is it such a hot topic now? It's like uh, Parker, the dude we were talking about earlier. You talked about it. it's it's two bastard two bastardized theories put together for like a, a completely brain dead bastardized theory. It doesn't even make well, sense. I wrote about it. I got twelve pages on modern monetary theory where I've tried to put it together, and it turns out the modern monetary theorists did the heavy lifting for me. They wrote a manifesto this year, in which by just reading the manifesto, you go. Oh my God, now I get it. They're scary, right? Their own manifesto traumatizes the reader. Is it about the Green New Deal? Oh, that's part of it, but that's a small part of it. Oh, it's, they think- Nine trillion is a small part of it? Well, that's a big number, but it's a small part of their platform. They think that government, government committees ought to decide what industries to influence. They think they ought to use monetary policy to decide how to emphasize one industry over the other. They think that um, they think that you can keep printing money, that you should just pay for it by printing. They're setting up the cognitive hubs. They're going to spatially redistribute yeah, and, us. And they, 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 uh, and they say that. Um, let me think of the other things they say. They say that uh, 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 that 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 um, that monetary policy is their distinct issue is they have to deal with the fact that 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 people are are some people are too wealthy right and so monetary policy in charge of that so they they think that it's the, they're in charge of deciding how quick to burn the economy and stuff like that it's like there's no room in their theory for free markets they think that you should uh keep higher the government should hire people to do stuff when the economy's not running at full throttle so they want to build bridges to nowhere and crap like that and big digs and stuff with workers and then they talk about how when the economy is running well they'll d but the phrase was d employ disemploy people and let the free market take over and i'm going so you're going to what stop the big dig you're going to stop the bridge to nowhere and you're going to and you're going to you're going to build them with temp workers or something what 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 are you talking about they don't they have no idea how to handle inflation they they you know they, they think they, they think they hit they, they they think they're in charge of directing money to to solve the climate problem. Well, I mean, this what? is really spooky stuff. These people need cat scans. They're nuts. Yeah, well, it's individuals who think they can micromanage very complex systems, emergent systems. Like how? Right. How, how is way- this not? How is this not like known that these con- these systems are complex and should be emergent? Like- Tell me, no one can give me an example of a single thing that didn't evolve, right? that didn't evolve through trial and error, calling the herds, throwing out the failures, keeping the winners, right? I don't care if it's the microchip, an organism, I don't care what it is, they evolve. You have to have a Darwinian selection to make a complex system. And they want to take that out. <clears throat> As does the Federal Reserve. So their, their best argument is the Fed and the current system are, are run by idiots. And I go, yes, we agree on that part. Uh, 100% agree. How do we wrest control from these idiots who was it no. uh hike said we'll never have control of our money till we wrest it from the whole hands of the government gold i would argue is in the hands of the government via the vaults in the 6102 acts executive order 6102 bitcoin um, but you on your own bitcoin um, maybe that sly roundabout way to take control of the money you know if we need bitcoin or gold both will do fine that's my guess. My guess is Bitcoin and gold are joined at the hip in terms of the, the future. 
I think gold is like sort of like a treasury bond where Bitcoin is more of a, um, a more speculative um, um, protection mechanism, right? So oh. higher risk, higher reward. I like that. I like that uh, right. description. Right. And I'm just going with the treasury. Yeah. Uh, well, Dave, thank you for all that you do. It's been an incredible hour and a half. We just blew through 90 minutes pretty quickly. Or in 90 minutes, fun. but it felt I, fast. I like ranting. I like, like ranting. You know, to have someone to rant back and forth with, I get it off my chest. I can tell. Well, we have plenty more time to rant if you have anything else on your mind that you think uh, needs to be ranted on. Uh, well, so my year review gets uploaded tonight. This is Friday the 20th, in case I don't know when this is loaded. Um, the night, evening of Friday the 20th, part one. Um, the most entertaining part might be the Epstein part. I, I paid pretty oh. close attention to Epstein. All right, let's dive and, into it. And, and one of the problems the Epstein story presents is that it's part of a continuing stream of independent sets of rules for powerful people and unpowerful. So, for example, I was going to write a ton about Jesse Smollett. <laughs> the Epstein story sucked the action right out of the room on that. So I make brief mention of it, right? Mm-hmm. But, but, you know, Michelle Obama calls someone in Chicago, next thing you know, he walks, right? That's how the system works. So that struck me as an important story. But then Epstein, right? Behind, here's what I'll say to your readers, um, listeners. Uh, the Epstein story, in my opinion, is the biggest scandal in U.S. history. And they are furiously trying to put it away because, because they, they want to keep the story simplified to he was a perv, he had friends who were pervs, let's move on, right? That's what they're trying to do. It is a web of thousands of people that goes back decades and 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 doing things and and controlling the world in a way. So it really is, you know, it really dwarfs things like Kennedy assassinations, in my opinion, stuff like that. I think it dwarfs it. Uh, I do as well. I mean, it's it it was it was so fucking blatantly obvious what was happening. I mean, well, there's a non-obvious part. I think. Um, I think there's a more than 50% chance he's not dead. Oh, uh, I mean, you, you're, you believe that or you believe yes, there's a I possibility. Did. Yeah. Not just possibility. I put it, if I had to bet a paycheck right now, I would bet he's not dead. And right. here's the simple argument. Here's a simple argument. I have an argument for why we'll never travel in time too. So don't underestimate. Um, Epstein had been doing, uh, he was an, a, a, a Mossad intelligence agent for 40 years, right? His whole life, his whole adult life, he's been in intelligence. He's been setting up honey traps. He's been, you know, running a bed and brothel, uh, brothel and breakfast. Um, and, and he's been, um, they say he was blackmailing people. I don't think that's the accurate description. I actually think he was luring people into this twisted world. And of course, he then owned them. But but he then they off they were offered power and wealth and young girls right I, this is not blackmail this is something altogether different so Epstein had dirt that could bring bring down unbelievable people King Andrew he's sitting in jail or Prince he's Andrew. sitting in jail and a guy with forty years of experience is he not going to say if I don't get out of here alive and in one piece I'm going to release the hounds that's what Snowden did. Uh, Daniel Ellsberg's Pentagon Papers, he released it to multiple news sources so they couldn't suppress it, right? And and so Epstein 
knowing the risk he was in, he kept getting you know convicted of stuff and then and then getting let off on easy things and sealed court cases and the whole mess shows that he knew how to play the game. So you couldn't safely kill Epstein at all. There's no way you could just whack him because he'd have a suicide. It's called a suicide switch. A um, dead man switch. Dead man switch. Yeah. And, and so he was untouchable. In fact, the biggest risk was someone who wanted this to happen, killing him, right? That was the biggest risk, in my opinion. And, you know, his his Bimbet partner, Giseline Maxwell, who I give the nickname to, Jizz, I was very proud of that. Um, <laughs> she, uh, her father was the most famous Israeli spy of all time, right? I mean, this is a wild, wildly connected world. Epstein traces back to Roy Cohn. They trace back to Meyer Lansky in the 20s, right? This There's an amazing story here. And so he's on some beach with a facial reconstruction getting rub and tugs from jizz. Jesus. Um, and, and so it's witness protection, right? Yeah. But, but the punchline, I know who the dead body on the gurney was. Who was it? You really want to know now or do you want your readers to? <laughs> so if you read this thing, it turns out, Social media tore this apart fast. The ear there was a was... picture of Epstein on the gurney. Of course, you, have you ever seen a dead body on a gurney on the news? No, but this one made it to the news, right? So that right there is sort of odd. But if you look at the guy's face on the gurney, the profile, look at Epstein, they're not the same guy. The ear's wrong, the whole ear construction, you know, all this cartilage and shit, totally different shape. The nose on the guy in the gurney's got a distinct sort of bend to it. Epstein's a, a straight edge. So the nose is all wrong. And so the question is, who's the guy in the gurney? Well, just so happens. And this, this I, I, I put no probability on this theory, none whatsoever, but it's the funniest conspiracy theory of all time. <laughs> the funniest. Three weeks before that, a guy who looks like Epstein died. And you look at him and you go, that nose looks right to me. That ear could pass for right. He died. The media said unknown cause. It was announced, a number of articles were written, said he was deeply embedded up the shenanigans and, and Eastern Bloc crap, you know, usual dark world. The guy who died, and as I put it, I, I'm so proud of this one, I said he wouldn't even be freezer burnt yet, right? Three weeks earlier. But then I realized if you recognize the similarities, you whack them and you need the, the carcass, you take the photo of the gurney three weeks back. Right. right. So you wouldn't have to put them in deep freeze for three weeks. You just take the photo. And, and there's all parts of the story that fall apart. But the guy on the gurney, the guy in the Mets hat at a baseball game, you're looking at and you're going, this guy died. Not question. There's no doubt he died. Three weeks earlier. There's no doubt you go, that could be an Epstein clone right there. He's pretty good. He looks like the guy in the gurney is wait for it wait for it hillary's brother no yes sir yes sir. what brother hillary's brother tony rodham three and i give an a plus to the spooks charged with getting a carcass and saying hillary's brother's a candidate and he gets whacked three weeks earlier no cause of death given and they put his ass on the gurney. They take a photo. And, and I think the other message is to maybe to, to social media actually picked up on this and, and they said that maybe it's a message to Hillary Epstein ain't dead either, bitch, right? I don't know. Wait. But he so did die. They did not announce cause of death. There was a few news stories and that's it. 
Wait, so Hillary's brother did die? He, he absolutely died. Yes. Major press stories, you know, credible press stories. Not that there's such a thing anymore, but they were there. And no cause of death. Every article says no cause of death given. Hillary announced it, right? That her brother died and blah, 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 blah. And then three weeks later, a guy in a gurney looks like her brother posing as Epstein. Damn. I'll would, send you a copy of my year in review by email. It's fucked up because it's like not hard to believe that. I know. <laughs> and, 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 you know, the, the idea that the spooks could get him out of prison, you know, with, uh, Jesus, if they can't do shit like that, right? The guards fell asleep and they were the, overworked. The fact the that the broke. camera went out, the camera, the, the camera went out. There was no footage showing anyone going in. And then the, there's footage that's now disappeared again. I mean, this, this, they've been revising this plot on a daily basis and they're trying to put it away. They are so they don't care if Prince Andrew looks like a perv. They don't care if Clinton looks like a perv. Like, that's a tough sell. They care if we find out that the Israeli uh, Mossad is infiltrated all of Silicon Valley. They care if, if we find out that, that, there's a, that there's a network of pervs, including maybe hundreds, if not thousands of people globally. They care, they care if everyone is all connected in this twisted web of connectivity. They don't want that shit. They want it to be Epstein's a perv, his girlfriend's a perv. He was, he, he, he was rich. No one knows how he got rich. There's no evidence that they know how he got rich. Right? The whole thing smells from top, top to bottom. The, the, the connection of Epstein to the, to the intelligence agencies is, I think, unambiguous. The ambiguous part is what that finish, that end game was. Right. And I don't think you could kill him. I do not think you could kill him. Because he'd probably, yeah, he'd probably definitely have a dead man switch, right? I'll tell you, that's what I do. Right. Damn. My holy crap, right? How could he be so stupid as to not do that? Well, but it's like everybody knows it's bullshit and that. Well, and, and, what, you remember who the coroner was, right? Michael Bodden? Yeah, who else did he do in the past? The um... He did JFK! <laughs> Michael Bodden did JFK! He was a young punk, he did JFK! And then he, he testified for OJ, and then he, 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 oh my God, he was the corner of the stars. He's 86 years old, and they bring him in to do the autopsy. And, and then I say, well, he was strangled, broke his hyoid bone. They don't care if the world thinks he got murdered. That's not relevant either. Right. Because they say, yeah, he had lots of powerful friends. He was a risk. Someone had him whacked. We are, what, that doesn't shock us, right? This is the Clinton body count is everywhere, right? All yeah. the memes on Twitter about Hillary and a guard's outfit, Bill and guard's outfit. That, that just went wild. There's no news in that. There's nothing new. The, but here's the deal. Not one of his accomplices, not one of the pervs that, you know, there were, there's, there's transcripts that have been released of the civil cases. I've read them. They're original screen grabs in which, the, in which the, the victim is saying, this person, naming names, I'm not going to name because they have law degrees, this person raped me. Why are they not being interrogated? Right? Where is Jiz, Jiz Maxwell? Why is she not being interrogated? Why did they not raid his island for months until he killed himself? Why have we heard nothing about what was at the island? Right. right. We had to get Luke Rodolph, uh, butcher his last name, Rodolfsky, to go to the pedo island with his with his camera by himself. 
Yeah, well, there have been some, but the place is set. So his, there's a police video from 2005, I think it is, where they obviously, it's by protocol, they, they walk through Epstein's house and they just film everything after he got arrested. And there's, you know, there's sort of mildly erotic art everywhere. And there's, and, and, and what's really noticeable is there's just bedroom after bedroom after bedroom. And every bedroom has an attached bathroom. Right. So they're all like master bedroom, master bathroom sort of combos. You know, the houses I see, you got a master bedroom, master bathroom, and then the kids all share shit. Right. Mm -hmm. So the other thing you notice is there's stacks of towels, there's toiletries, none of it being used. There's no toothbrush laying on the side of the sink. Bedroom after bedroom, it's pristine. You realize you're not looking at a house. There's no, uh, it's not a snapshot of a human existence. There's no you know, there's no uh, dishes in the sink. There's no stack of papers. It is a bed and breakfast, or what I call a, a, a brothel and breakfast. Yeah, and, it's a cat and, house. And so he's running this operation out of his house, and in his connection with Roy Cohn, Roy Cohn was a, a massively evil hitman for political means. He was a kingmaker, and and he 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 was the lawyer to Studio Fifty Four, where all the hit where all the hedonistic shit took place. Yeah, what was going on at Studio 54? Well, I don't know. It's, I don't even know if it exists now, but back then it's where everyone was doing all sorts of uh, uh, stuff that you and I wish we could do. <laughs> um, so Cone was a badass. And he was, he was, he had ties to Rupert Murdoch and to Reagan and to, he made, he made and broke careers. He was tied to uh, Cone, was pictorially, you can even see it. Uh, he was tied to McCarthy. He was tied to Jagger Hoover. He, he, he was tied to mobsters. Cone was Jeffrey Epstein. But here's where Epstein differed from Cone. Epstein was sort of, I think, pathetic. So what they had was a guy who could do all the pervy shit, but he wasn't a kingmaker, mm -hmm. right? He was, he, was, he, he was like the drug dealer who consumed his own product too much. So he got mm -hmm. so wound up in all the bimbos that, that he just wanted to go around and do the shit that he was helping other people do. Yeah. You know, everyone, the, the left, for example, is shaken off the fact that Clinton was all over the logs, right? Right. And it's, how do you forgive him for that, right? Why are right. you not saying, holy shit? Well, Trump was even on the logs, too. Like... Yeah, but he wasn't on the plane, I don't think. Oh, and, no. And actually, in the original transcripts, there were some, some, some footage where... Um, where they were asking about Trump, and and the and the woman said, "No, I never saw him," but she had seen Clinton. She had seen uh, Prince Andrew. She she yeah, right. Then I, I have this funny line. I, sometimes I write shit. I go, "Oh, I'm proud of that." Um, where I where I had I, I imitated Fantasy Island, and I had and, and tattoo says, "Boss, boss, de plane, de plane," and then and then Ricardo Montalban says, "Unshackle the girls." <laughs> And so the Epstein story to me is just humongous because it's been put away. Barbara Walters, access journalists, never called anyone out on this stuff because they, you know what they all share? They all want to be elite, powerful, connected. Well, that's, that's actually, I, right? Well, I think What's that? I was actually very happy to see Project Veritas get that, uh, get that, yes. that hot yes. mic. Yes, they usually overplay it, but that was a good hot micer, that one. And uh, 
But I, they, she said we had everything. I'm going, no, you didn't. You had a small fraction of the story, right? They didn't have everything. And by the way, that has not been released even now. Like, what do you mean? So now the story's relevant. Where is it? Right? It's gone. By the way, uh, this the Epstein connects with Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein connects with Mossad. I mean, this 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 is a this is an extraordinary. So I think it's a web. Here, here's the question: A normal guy, normal guy. Your wife's not watching, right? Normal guy. We all like to think we're benevolent, but but what most of us have never faced is not only some hot chick hitting on you, you're marrying some hot chick hitting on you because because you put out the message, hey, I'm not available, and you shake it off, you move on, and nothing happens. But what we've never faced is one where a hot chick's hitting on you, and her fucking job is to get you. So if some chick who, who could you know stop traffic is banging on you, and her job is to catch you, that's when you find out what you're made of, right? And then the question is, can you slowly but surely suck guys into this world? So you suck them into that, and they say, oh, yeah, I can get you an 18-year-old. Next thing you know, you're doing 16-year-olds. But you think your shit doesn't stink. You think you're so powerful, and all these people around you, right? And then the question is, how hard would it be to get these guys to go all hedonistic? And I don't think it would be that hard. It's a if slow, that was your goal. It's a process. It's a, a little process. bit at a time. And you you justify it by saying, I'm untouchable. I, I'm you know, and remember back when uh, Dominique Strauss Kahn got booted out of what is the IMF, I think? Mm-hmm. They took him out with a honey trap. They had a chick accuse him of raping her. And, and he'd been banging chicks for years. But when it was time for him to go, and I think Lagarde replaced him, they took mm-hmm. him out. They just took him out. They just had her accuse him, and out he went, right? Yeah. That's how they do it. Roger Stone took out Gary Hart. The, the, that monkey business photo where Gary Hart was with uh, the, the chick sitting on his lap in a boat called Monkey Business, and then that leaked, and he, next thing you know, he's not running for president anymore. Roger Stone set that up. Uh, who's the, the 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 former prosecutor? I keep forgetting his name. Gaunt face. Uh, he, he's very ambitious. Then he got taken out, out by some prostitutes. Um, here in New York. Um, yeah, 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 Southern District. Yeah, it's um, Spitzer, not Spitzer. Spitzer, Elliot Spitzer. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he got taken out by Stone and Manafort. Those were just hits. Yeah. Those are honey traps. Those are that's the world they're in. Why these guys are are so deluded is to not recognize that they're being set up. There's a guy, um, Peter Dale Scott, who who uh, who who studied drug cartels. Berkeley professor studied drug cartels, and very quickly realized the drug cartels were not the story. Intelligence agencies were the story. I thought the drug cartels bought our politicians. Said, look, we'll give you money, or we'll bury your kids alive in, in your backyard. You make the choice. No. No, we decide which of these drug cartels gets to survive. Just like in Afghanistan, right? You're, you're our warlord. You go ahead and sell your poppies, but you work for us now. And if you don't, mm-hmm. we'll kill you. And, yeah. and when Noriega went off the reservation, we went and got him. We had to go get him. He was irrelevant, but we couldn't let anyone else who was on payroll show that they could walk. So it's leaving the mob, right? You're made mad at that point. And so Peter Dale Scott wrote about the drug cartels, but he... he uh, 
he talks about this idea of this deep state. He he called it deep politics, but that's where the origin. I think he might be the origin of the concept of the deep state, and about how once in a while the window opens and we get a quick glimpse. You go, what was that? So a Kennedy assassination, for example, quick glimpse. I'm a truther, it turns out. I, I, I looked at the, I look at the physics. I, I don't need politics for that. I look at the physics. I go, not a chance. My dad built buildings for a living. He didn't buy it. He built buildings for a living. He didn't buy it. He had an expertise in fireproofing. He didn't buy it. And, and so I, I, I did a poll on Twitter. I got about 5,000 answers. 65% were truthers. Right? There's a lot of people who don't buy the story. It's a matter of degree, though. Right? I don't buy that story at all. Do you believe they did this? I don't know. Do you believe they did that? Maybe. Right? So it's degree. But there's there's components of 9-11 that are just dead wrong. I mean, start trivially. They found Mohammed Atta's license in the wreckage the next day, 100 million pounds, tons of whatever, and they find his license from the ball of flames, right? So they start lying immediately. They ship the Saudis offshore immediately, right? So right away, the whole thing's fucked up. Building but 7 alone. Right, is... that doesn't mean that it was an inside job, but the, 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 there are certain things about the inside job of 9-11 which are so problematic and so against the laws of physics that I go, it's not, it's not legit. And there's some great truther um, documentaries where where they, they interview dozens of aeronautical engineers saying that plane would have ripped apart. You can't do that, right? And, and pilots saying there's no chance I could fly that flight path, right? No chance I could fly that flight path. The official flight path going into the Pentagon was impossible for a person to fly manually. And so there's all, and actually Chris Irons at, at, at QTR, I've been watching this for years when a physicist sent me the Building 7 video and I said, holy shit, that's all wrong. But, um, but Chris Irons sent me a couple of these documentaries and, and they were just great. We go, these are parts of the story I hadn't even seen. Like the, uh... so I, I happily bet a paycheck 9-11's a screw up, a, a, a serious yeah, I, I think I Harbor was a total screw. I, I think I think Lusitania, right? I think we get into wars by false flags. Lusitania was loaded with armaments. It wasn't a civilian ship. Yeah. Pearl Harbor, there are memos from admirals saying, "Do not put our our Pearl Harbor. They're indefensible." They did anyways, and they didn't even have guard towers. They didn't even have guard towers. They needed to get us into a war and we needed to sign off. And so they needed to, they needed Japan to bomb the shit out of us. There's memos guys saying we're going to get attacked within a week. Right there. This is just how governments do it. Now. Yeah. No, with 9-11 in particular, I mean, I don't think it was an inside job by the U S government, but there's some fuckery. I mean, the passport building seven, it's all, it's, I mean, it doesn't it's make any sense. Yeah. It just doesn't Pentagon's make any sense. Wrong. The Pentagon's wrong. There's not a shred of footage of the plane hitting the Pentagon. Nothing credible. How do you fly into Washington, D.C. with 45 minutes notice and no one catch it on a camcorder? Right? Not possible. Not possible. Right? And by the way, I mentioned the flight path. That, that plane did a, did a 270 to hit the Pentagon. That's the official story. At 540 knots. It turns out the aeronautical engineers say, you fly 540 knots at sea level, the plane is getting shredded. Those planes are spec to fly fast at 35,000 feet where there's no atmosphere. 
They don't fly 540 knots at sea level. No. And they, the pilot said, I, I couldn't do that 270 if you paid me. There's just no way. Right? So there's a lot of parts of the story that just, just keep failing to add up. And you know, there's a lot of spaghetti that sticks to the wall, kind of. And you go, well, if that was the story, I'd say forget it. But there's Building 7 never should have. No chance should Building 7 have done. No chance. No. Started a war. We're still in it. We're still in it. And, and you know what the Middle East is about? It's not about oil. It's about war. The industrial military complex, the trillions of dollars being spent in the Middle East is about war, not about oil. We can buy their oil. We, can we make don't even own the oil anymore. That's not Exxon's oil anymore. That's Aramco's. It's about war. It's about building jets and selling them to Saudi Arabia to then bomb Yemen and pretending. By the way, last year I wrote about Syria's chlorine gas attacks and how they were all wrong. They were all, you could, they were torn apart by social media. They made no sense. I wrote about it just in the last two months of an articles coming out saying those were fake. And I'm going, really? It took you a year to figure that out, right? The Skripal poisoning I wrote about, the Skripal poisoning hung in the Russians. That was a farcical, farcical story. I'm an organic chemist. The drugs, the compounds they supposedly were Russian derived could be made in a standard sophomore organic chemistry laboratory. <laughs> that simple. They're so simple that you can literally take the four key ingredients, pour them together in a bucket, and you'd have a toxic brew. Even if you didn't take any care to do it right, you'd have a toxic brew that could kill people. That's how simple they are. I put them on my final exam in a course I taught. I, I told the story about how I got into an international incident, and then I and then I I I, I put the the, 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 one of, the, one of the, the Novichok nerve agents on the exam said, how would you make this? Let me give you a hint. It'll take three steps total. 100% credit in the entire class with one kid who screwed it up. So apparently he can't be a terrorist. Right. But it, they're trivial. And then they said, oh, these have to be the Russians. They were lying. Right. I ended up all of our RT. I had Al Jazeera calling me, right? Because I spoke out and said that they're lying. Maybe the Russians did it, but what they're saying is a lie. Yeah. No, I mean, the Syrian gassing in particular, when John Kerry was trying to get us into that. Uh, right. It was a that, total farce. Well, but it also, that instance in particular gave me a lot of confidence in the power of Twitter, because I honestly think Twitter helped us not bomb Syria after that. And the conversation. Right. The out I think that that's exactly right. So what happened is the story fell apart too fast, and so they couldn't justify it. Right. Mm -hmm. If we had Twitter, if we had Twitter, when they were trying to sell us the Iraq war, I bet we could have stopped it. Yeah. No, I mean. Twitter would have torn the story apart. What do you think that uh, these communication channels now provide an opportunity for peace in the future? Are we going to give peace a chance? Well, I write about that too. Social media, social media, digital world is either going to save democracy or cause the demise of democracy. I don't know which way it's going yet. Yeah, um, because they can send propaganda across it just as much as we can debunk it. And what bothers the hell out of me, um, and I mentioned two names of people, Gavin McGinnis, who I think unfairly got hung out as basically a, a, a neo-Nazi. He's not, not even close. Um, the other guy who was hated by the left was uh, Milo Yiannopoulos, right? Mm -hmm. And, and he, I understood why people hated him. I mean, he was very polarizing. They've rubbed him out. He's gone. Actually, they've um, taken him off all the digital world. They've scrubbed him. 
He's been erased. He actually just did a very good podcast with Ari Shafir um, talking about the concept of trolling. Highly recommend you go check it out. I don't care what you think about Milo. What's the name? Ari Shafir. Um, He's a comedian. He's actually good friends with Rogan. Um, A-R-I-S-H-A-F-I-R. But he had Milo on about a month ago, um, basically explaining Milo's mentality of why he trolls and it's to get at truth that's what trolling is about at the end of the day is to get that's at right. truth right. and and i understood why people hate him but i don't understand why in any way shape or form is good news that he could be scrubbed right the, and the there's band- great guys tim pool here's a guy started out super left and now you listen to him and boy he just hates the left um tim pool is this guy who's who's who best i can tell has no credentials all he has is the head on his shoulders yeah, no, and Tim's he just a, does a wonderful job of tearing apart these issues. No, Tim's incredible. I've been following him for a while. Actually, trying to get him on the podcast too. Um, yes, you should. He's so smart. I mean, the smartest guy I ever met was a third grade educated bean picker. Brains and in, in education should not be confused. No, no, especially in today's education system. Um. <laughs> <laughs> really? really? You think menstrual studies is not appropriate? I have a whole section on thoughts on college too, where I basically try to say, quit wasting your money on stupid stuff. I think college is a good thing, but if the kid wastes it, you're, you know, if you're taking a four credit hour course of menstrual studies, you're dropping eight grand. Right. right. Eight grand to study menstruation, right? Your kid better find a better, a cheaper way to find themselves, right? No, I mean, you could teach yourself anything online. I'm a big proponent of, I mean, in college, I had a lot of professors who I couldn't understand. I also understand. think we're moving towards a system where credentials are going to be under less emphasized. Oh, definitely, 100%. percent getting to the point where it's going to come down to your skills, not your credentials. I think we're already there, especially in the world of software development. Oh, my God, yes, yeah. I mean, Edward Snowden, I don't think was highly educated, right? No, no, I don't think so. Um, yeah, so software development is very emergent. Like you, you just learn by tinkering with it and you get good at it right. over time. You know, you can't be so really I'm be taught. Told. I'm told. Yeah. <laughs> I think I'm the only guy in, um, the known universe who took a graduate level physics course without any calculus. Um, <laughs> uh, so in any case, it's been fun. That's no, been great. Well, I can't re- wait to read your end of year review. Even though we just talked I'll about a lot of it, as long as these guys, you know, their their family issues don't don't delay it. I like to release it on Friday evenings, pre Christmas. That's the kind of, you know, there's there's always one Friday. Go okay, that's the target Friday right there. Yeah, well, whenever it comes out, I'm going to be reading it uh, very quickly. What are uh, well, how are your thoughts of Bitcoin after this conversation? Even though it wasn't really the focus. Well, they haven't changed so much except for, um, because I've had conversations like this, but um, I, I'm not going into it um, in, in part because of this, this, I don't want the risk reward combo, right? I, I, I'm, I'm happy to dial it back with my gold risk reward. And I do believe that if you win, I win too. And mm-hmm. so I, I don't worry about that. Um, I do think the big worry is is how Bitcoin sustains itself against the state. I, I think that's what I think that's the, and I can think of all sorts of ways they can try to squash you, and, and then the, the question will be, can they squash you? And I, it seems to me, again, I keep coming back to it has to be sustainable 
as a not really mainstream currency because I think they can make mainstream not work. I think the sovereign state can make people not willing to use it to buy a pizza. No, Bitcoin is street money. It is black market money. Uh, right. And it has to. It has to be able to survive as that kind of currency. And if yes. it can do that, and the, the, his name was McCullough from from Russia. He 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 said it it can. His opinion was it can. He says it doesn't have to go mainstream to survive. Um, yeah. There's going to be some bumps in the road, right? Oh, there already have been many, many bumps. Yeah, I know. To... The, 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 the sell-offs are impressive, right? They're, 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 they really look death-defying. There's no stock or something that does that and then bounces, right? Those are, those are usually the last, you know, gurgling noises coming out of a dead company that do that. Yeah, you get um, used to them after a while. Yeah. It helps to be up. So, you know, I was buying gold between 270 and 290. And so when it went from 1900 to, you know, 1200-ish, um, it's not that it didn't hurt, but it sure as hell takes the pain out when you're still up by a factor of whatever. Mm -hmm. And by the way, over the last 20 years, gold has beat the S and P by 2% annualized. Something to think so about freaks. Cackle at the gold bugs at your own peril. We've beat your asses for 20 years. And that's why I started buying it. So you can bite me if you don't like gold. You know? <laughs> well, I won't be biting you because I do like gold. I also like yeah. Bitcoin. And right. uh, I like you like you as well, Dave, and I really appreciate you taking Thank you. Thank now we're you. at two, two hours and five minutes. I really appreciate it. It was fun. I hope your uh, hope your audience got their money's worth. Oh, they're it's definitely I'm very interested to hear their reactions how to this many, episode. How many, how many people click? What what's your typical click count? We'll get around like ten thousand downloads here. Oh, that's pretty good. That's yeah, pretty nothing good. too crazy. I have no idea what the click count on my on my year in review is. I have no idea what it is. I, I've never gotten a hard number. I should ask the Peak Prosperity guys what kind of. The other thing, it comes in two parts. And what I really want to know is what's the click count in part two? Is there a huge drop off where people read part one and go, I, I just can't read part two, right? Do people follow um, up? Yeah, do people follow all the way? But um, I get hundreds and hundreds of emails after I write this thing. So. Um, so I think, uh, you know, it keeps inspiring me to do it, but it's so cathartic. It, it is cathartic, like passing a kidney stone cathartic. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, I, I, I reach a point where I have over 100 pages of poorly written, poorly edited, unfunny, raw stuff, no graphics. It, it's just awful. It's just a pile of prose. And I look at it, I go, this is just crap. But I've written enough papers in my career to know that, yes, but crap can be edited out of crapness, right? So, yes, no. And I eventually get it there. And I'm pretty happy with it. It's different this year. Yeah, you're speaking to somebody who writes a daily newsletter and never edits it. Oh, my just... God. You have my sympathy. Yeah, it's not fun. It's yeah, worth it. Yeah, you got to face it. Yeah. Yeah. You know, William Buckley was asked, how do you write three, three op-eds a week? And he says, I just have to think of three things that piss me off every week. And I'm thinking, oh boy, that, that sounds easy actually. Yeah. People, the bent is a daily rant. That's what people call it. And someone else said, the trick is to be able to say the same thing a hundred times and make people think it's different. <laughs> that is true as well. That is true as well. <laughs> okay. Let's call it. Let's do it. Let's end it. We're out. Had fun. That was a lot of fun. Uh, You're, uh, I might freak you out with this ending here. Peace and love, freaks. <laughs>
<laughs> no, you can't. Nothing freaks me out. Nothing. I think it freaks me out. Someone likes Hillary. 